What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. folks to the attitude of aggression wrestling podcast yes it is i know another episode so quickly after the last one it's shocking it's amazing it's it's all that fun stuff but anyway i am your host big dave unger attitude of aggression wrestling podcast coming to you today to discuss it is time for we have on this episode let's see what do we got going on all sorts of stuff this is actually episode 277 of the podcast, and on this episode, it is going to be chapter four of the Big Four Project. We are going to be focusing in on SummerSlam 1988, the very first SummerSlam, and Survivor Series 1988, which, is, of course, is the second Survivor Series, and this is kind of like, at this point in time, we are fully on the road to the Mega Powers exploding storyline, which... um up until recently has been largely considered to be the greatest storyline of all time as far as uh pro wrestling's concerned uh we'll discuss at the end of this I'll, well okay let's so here's what i'm gonna do on the big four the uh, the big four project this latest chapter chapter four for the first half of the SummerSlam 1988 review i'm joined by pc tunny of course and then a newcomer who I think you're probably going to get a lot more of going forward. Uh, it is DJ from the Mindless Wrestling Podcast. Uh, DJ, of course, the Mindless Wrestling Podcast, another one of the great, fantastic podcasts available on the Chairshot Radio Network, part of the Chairshot.com. And uh, DJ's kind of like, he's he's a little bit younger than me, but we're both, I think, in our 50s now. I mean, I know I am. I think he's right there. And so having him on to talk about some of this stuff is great because it's in his era as well. And, and he lived it as you know, you know, a little bit younger than I was, but he still lived it as well. So I think having him on for this, at least this stretch really is going to be excellent and offers a different insight. And you will hear that on this. So Tony and, and DJ joined me for the first half of the SummerSlam 88 review. And then we finished it off later on that same day. We cut out, we recorded Bandwagon Nerds, and we came back. It was just me and DJ finishing it out. And then I think like two weeks later, DJ and I came on and we finished the Survivor Series 88 review and talking about that. So you're going to get that in the first half of this uh, Big Four project. When that's done, I'll come on at the end and I'll talk a little bit about Elimination Chamber and kind of where we are with WWE right now. Very exciting times. We're about a month out, a little bit more than a month out, like five weeks, I think, from WrestleMania 39. <clears throat> we will be there in Los Angeles. We have our tickets. We will also be at NXT Stand and Deliver uh, that morning of WrestleMania. It's like an 845 start time <laughs> down in L.A., which is going to be fun to get down there in time. But it's a Saturday, so traffic shouldn't be so bad. So I want to talk a little bit about Elimination Chamber 
and kind of where we are right now because it's uh, like i said a very exciting time in pro wrestling but i'm not going to belabor the issue right now i want to get into the big four project aspect of things get tunny in here get dj in here um we'll do the Sum- SummerSlam 88 review first i'll probably throw in a commercial in the middle of that uh to break it up between you know a transition point between that first pay-per-view and then survivor series 1988 we'll finish that up then i'll come on and talk a little bit about kind of where we are right now it's a very exciting interesting time in uh pro wrestling and wwe but anyway we are going to get to it i'm going to of course dj has never been on the show before so he gets to have the world famous ron burgundy jazz flute you got to get that involved because it's it's a it's a rite of passage for anybody coming on the show you got to do the, the jazz flute so we're going to hit the jazz flute especially for dj tony's had it so many times i've lost count but we'll do that. We'll get into the Big Four Project, uh, Chapter 4, SummerSlam 88, Survivor Series 88, and then I'll come back on, talk a little bit about Elimination Chamber. With that being said, Ron, take us to the Big Four Project, Chapter 4, please. Welcome back, everybody, to the Attitude of Aggression Wrestling Podcast. We are back here on the Big Four Project. This is Chapter 4 of the project we will be covering on this episode. The very first SummerSlam, SummerSlam 1988. The very first, or no, very second, very second, second Survivor Series 1988. Uh, And yeah, those two, we are into the sweet spot, the hot spot of the Mega Powers Rise fall and explosion storyline and things are going to definitely progress in a good direction with respect to those events or that big i mean what i still consider to be the greatest storyline in wrestling history with all due respect to our friend ray cash who's got an interesting take on that tunny pc tunny of course joining me here again to talk the big four project tunny a how are you doing b i know you did the wrestling best wrestling storylines of all time podcast with outsider's edge which had some um, interesting discussions, uh, that sort of thing. But how are you, my friend? I'm good. I've done a lot of podcasting this week, so let's just keep the ball rolling. It's WrestleMania season. Stay tuned to Chairshot Radio Network, and hey, maybe you'll see another big four before you know it. <clears throat> I hope so. You know, these these are the fun projects. We are actually joined by a third party, the third man, the Hulk Hogan to our fledgling NWO sort of thing here. The one and only DJ from the Mindless Wrestling Podcast, DJ. 
Uh, that seemed like, you know, we might've had this conversation a few minutes ago, but some dumbass host on my end, which is me, forgot to press the record button. And, you know, so I'm going to ask you to repeat yourself, let people know who you are and what you do at the chairshot.com, my friend. Uh, I am one of the hosts of the Mindless Wrestling Podcast, and usually technical errors plague my podcast, so I, maybe I'm bringing some bad luck onto yours, uh, and if so, I apologize. Uh, excited for this, uh, my first time here on the Attitude of Aggression Podcast, and I hope it... <laughs> I hope it goes better than my 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 maiden voyage with the bandwagon nerds because you know I, I, their host there has has heat with me over some of my takes. Uh, but yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about some things uh, on the Mindless Wrestling Podcast. It's myself, Rob, and Jason, and we just we just chop chop things up about things going on in wrestling. It's very WWE heavy. We are WWE drones, as they like to say. But if there's something noteworthy going on elsewhere in the pro wrestling world, we will talk about it. We do make it very clear we are not a news with an S or a Z podcast. So we don't report news, but we do offer some commentary on it and try not to get ourselves too deeply entrenched in in, in a lot of the nonsense uh, that, that goes on in the Internet wrestling community and, quite frankly, in the podcast community. There is a lot of that. And for the record, one Mr. Patrick O'Dowd has heat with a lot of us. So you are you are not alone in that regard, DJ, as, as Tunney will will attest to that, that, uh, yeah, a lot of us Cheer are. shot, number one villain. He is the number one villain, and, it, and it's not just a catchy nickname. There is a reason for that sort of thing. So, yeah, that's you have nothing to worry about, my friend. It's all it's all good. So anyway. Yeah, so I know normally at the beginning of these uh, episodes, we kind of touch base on the current product, but there's not a, a ton to talk about with respect to the current stuff going on. We all covered it last week. Tony, like you said, has been on 25 different pro- podcasts since I then. mean, yeah, you can even get a SmackDown coverage uh, on DWI podcast from Saturday afternoon. Right, exactly. So Cheers. Royal Rumble, we're a week out from that. That happened. The bloodline continues to implode. Jay White may or may not have signed with WWE. Oh, that'd be great. We'll, we'll see what happens. That's uh, that's something to be addressed later on down the line. But anyway, we are going to talk the big four project today. Chapter four, SummerSlam 1988, the first SummerSlam. We're going to begin there. And this took place August 29th, 1988, Madison Square Garden, New York City. Gorilla Monsoon, he's on commentary. Superstar Billy Graham, he's on commentary. So, um, yeah, as far as I know, like in the previous chapters, we've kind of t- kind of done backstory on the events in question and what went into them. With respect to the first SummerSlam, I didn't find a whole lot about that other than, you know, we've talked about like WrestleMania four, whatever you think about the tournament. And we know there were issues with that. But from a commercial success standpoint, WrestleMania four was huge for the WWE. And it was really, if I recall, I think, well, th- WrestleMania three was pay-per-view i think the first survivor series was kind of sort of pay-per-view ish wrestlemania 4 was certainly big time pay-per-view and did huge numbers for wwe so vince seeing you know vince for whatever faults he has currently back in the late 80s was a genius as far as marketing as marketing as far as knowing what the fans wanted as far as getting the product out to as many people as possible and he clearly saw that pay-per-view was the way of the future. So it makes sense why they would want to create yet another event. And this would be the final of the big four pay-per-views. And it's the first SummerSlam. I remember this very well when it actually happened. It was huge. 
And leading into the first SummerSlam, Randy Savage, of course, he's the champion. Uh, Hulk Hogan goes away for a few months. I think he was filming. I, it may have been No Holds Barred or something like that or, or one of the movies that Hulk was doing. I don't remember exactly what it was. But, you know, Vince had already decided, and we talked about it last time, Tony, the possibilities that there were at least some thoughts that there was an alternate storyline where DiBiase would have won the championship at WrestleMania 4 and Savage may have taken it from him at, at the first SummerSlam. Obviously, they went in a different direction, and it's you know it's all for the best. But leading into this thing, Savage defends the title against DiBiase a few times, then gets into some stuff with Andre the Giant. Andre starts really abusing Randy at every turn. Obviously, Randy Savage, no real match for Andre the Giant, never mind the fact that Andre didn't really like Randy outside of the ring so much. Um, and... You know, we get the situation with Randy Savage comes in and he announces that I think at some point on the road to SummerSlam, Hogan or Andre and Ted DiBiase challenge Randy Savage to find a partner. They'll take him on at, at SummerSlam. And of course, Savage comes up with the best tag team partner anybody could ever have. Yeah. Tunney's making the handshake. Hogan comes out and it's on, you know, and that's kind of setting the stage for the first SummerSlam and the first SummerSlam, like. Really, when they started advertising it, all it was was the picture, that iconic picture of Liz with her hands on the chest of, you know, Savage and Hogan um, looking over her shoulder. And that's really all you knew. So you didn't really know. They didn't develop the card that well. We didn't know going into this thing. Okay, what are we actually going to have here? Um, And the card's going to, of course, be remembered for one of the most iconic moments in WWE history. We're going to get into that. But. You know, you guys got any thoughts before we start talking about the matches as far as kind of the setup for SummerSlam 88? Um, Yeah, I kind of remember where my head was at that point in time in life. Uh, I was really, really super hot into WWE at the time, and WWE was super hot at the time. Um, And there was a bit of headbutting in my house because we had access to NWA slash WCW. My dad was a fan of that. He wasn't really a fan of the WWF at the time because it was that that bloated spectacle type thing. And he liked the more gritty, quote unquote, real wrestling. So it was a hard sell on my parents that I don't remember what uh, pay-per-views were at the time. They were anywhere between 25 and 50 bucks. I don't remember for going back quite a number of years. And but for a family that was living month to month, that was a bit of money to try and shell out for. A wrestling event so it took a bit of convincing on their part but i was deeply entrenched in the storyline i for whatever faults they may have had i enjoyed the tournament where randy savage won um so i was hooked from that point i was hooked in i was roped into this and just the lead up and the build up back then for me was exciting dj how old are you because you're like close to my age i think uh, yeah i'll be 50 this year okay and i'm 54 so we kind of we're in the same time frame. Um, yeah. And I grew up in, in Virginia, Washington, DC area. So we had, that was a unique area because it was really split down the middle. WWF, NWA, we were getting both fed in. So I, I definitely remember and, and feel what you were saying. You had flair and all that stuff going on in the NWA at that time. Sting starting 88s when sting starts to really become a much bigger deal. So you've got that. And then you've got, yeah, I think like WrestleMania four, when you look back on the tournament as we are now analysts and podcasters, you can critique it. But yeah, in 88, it was the greatest thing ever. You know, that tournament was fantastic. It absolutely was. I enjoyed it. And that was a weird period of time for me because I was also, like I said, I was deeply into the WWF stuff, but I was also 15 years old. 
starting to go into, you know, it was a kind of coming of age thing. Suddenly I'm more into girls than I was a year or two prior. And wrestling fans in 2023 are really spoiled. And I don't know if you found this to be true, Dave Tunney, but back in the eighties, while wrestling was popular as a fan, you still kind of talked about it kind of on the, on the down low. Cause the, you know, that's fake crowd was much, much more vocal back then, at least from what I could tell. Um, so I, I didn't always, you know, wear loudly and proudly that I was a WWF and a pro wrestling fan. And you absolutely did not talk about it if you were trying to, you know, talk to a girl. So it was kind of that weird coming of age type life for me where I'm like still really, really into this. But I'm really, really, really into girls. So See, for me, I'm I'm uh in high school when NWO and DX is happening. So it was cool. It was cool for everybody. It was so cool that, you know, you couldn't go around and crotch chop after a little while anymore. (laughs) So like, that's the kind of shit that went through, but you know, I was, what, what year are we? 88, right? So I'm seven, but we have cable, we have cable and I see WWF and I see whatever's on Saturday night. Um, I don't think it was WCW technically at the time. It was NWO. It was their Saturday night show. Yeah, Saturday night's right. main event. And then I also got a lot of AWA in syndication too, being from the Milwaukee area in Wisconsin. So look at that got, cheese grin on this guy. I got I got all of that stuff <laughs> around this time, but obviously WWF as a kid, as a seven year old, you know, Hulk Hogan is bigger than life. Ultimate Warrior, the colors and the run into the ring is just like too much, and the hatred for the honky tonk man is real. So. And we're going to yeah. talk about that. We're, we're going to welcome in a fourth person who's not just sitting in the background sending out incendiary fucking messages on the chat. It's Ray, the Reverend Ray Cash, who did chapter one of the Big Four Project, is actually coming back in here to talk a little SummerSlam 1988 with us. Ray, how are you doing, man? Other than I'm trying not, to stir the fucking pot. I'm not staying. I just want to do a rant because I have not watched these shows at all. So I have no idea what the fuck to talk about. I just wanted to make this mess with y'all because I saw the chat was up and I just wanted to throw y'all off while y'all were recording. What an ass. Thanks, Ray. Literally, Ray does, literally a run in. Yeah. He does a run in, hits the stunner on everybody and hauls ass. Ow. What a heel. What a heel. My, hit my music. Uh, no, nah, I love you, Jens. DJ, I had to talk some trash about you too if I knew you was on the call. I know. Um, but I'll see y'all in, in an hour when we record Bandwagon Nerds every Monday on thechairshot.com. You always use your head, which apparently my we head is You already know your first pick is the 2000 Ravens defense. So, Or no, Trent Dilfer is going to be your quarterback, right? No, Elvis Garback. Okay, that works. Jeff George is available, I'm sure. So we'll see how that goes. Hey, Boot hey, this t- man off the pocket. Get out of here. <laughs> Go away. Where's the hook? Where's the hook? <laughs> Patrick would be proud of you, Tony. All right, so back to it. The The first match on SummerSlam 1988 is the Ru- fabulous Rougeau brothers versus the British Bulldogs. And I kind of looked into this a little bit because anybody who knows the history of these two teams knows that there is a, a big event that happens backstage, a big brawl that happens backstage with the Jacques Rougeau basically knocking out the teeth of the Dynamite Kid because uh, Dynamite was notorious for ribbing people and maybe taking things too far. And Jacques punches, I think he got brass knuckles and punched him in the mouth or something like that and knocked his teeth out. Um, 
it, I think I'm pretty sure this match happens before that incident takes place. Um, that's in doing my own research. I think this happens before that because you don't see some of the issues. Dynamite still looks pretty good in this match. And, and, and he, that I know that event really affected him mentally, but the match itself, it's an excellent match. It goes the full time limit. Yes, there were time limits draws and there were time limits in WWE at this time. We talked honey on the, uh, on the tournament where <laughs> Ray yeah. still, Ray still sending bullshit chats tweets and stuff but um you know tony we talked about when rude and, and jake the snake roberts went to a time limit draw at wrestlemania 4 so there are time limits in wwe at this time this one goes the distance i thought it was an excellent match the rujos who are heels at the time put on a clinic i mean an absolute clinic as to heel tag team tactics for this era of tag team wrestling um the bulldogs rally at the end they have the match won after you know you get the they hit the assisted flying headbutt but time runs out before the pin, and it's a draw. So this match I thought was really well put together because, I, like I said, the Rougeos are the masters of heel tag team tactics at the time, which cut the ring off, isolate the ring, isolate a body part, you know, kind of work that hot tag where, oh, the tag's made, but the ref doesn't seize it, which is almost tropey by modern standards. But in 88, it was still kind of cool. Um, Bulldogs rally almost get the win and then of course time runs out your guys thoughts uh, your memories on this opening mouth opening match at SummerSlam 88 it was cool to see the British Bulldogs like you said Dynamite Kid still had a little left in the tank there I do believe you're right it was before that incident but I think that's a is that a dark side of of wrestling I think so yeah yeah if you if you've watched that and you're looking for something different and you haven't checked out uh, Tales uh, from the Territories, check that out. That was really good. I believe that's on demand now. But, man, the first thing I thought of was steroids much. Um, even the Rougeau brothers who, like, aren't, like, caught up, they're really got – they're really stacked up for who they were. Um, and I was like, damn. But it was it was good tag team wrestling. It, I'll tell you what. A lot of the tag teams, men and women in the WWE main roster and NXT could take notes from this match and learn a few things because these are two really good tag teams. You don't necessarily, I think the Rougeau brothers are a little underrated. They're, they're very good heel tag teams. So very enjoyable tag match. Obviously the 20 minute draw is kind of like the, why did I, why did I bother? But you know, here we are. Exactly. DJ, any thoughts on this one? Yeah, there were a couple things. One, I totally forgot that there was because it's been ages since I've watched that 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 match, and I totally forgot they went to a draw, which was again a little more commonplace in WWE at the time. I found it interesting that a tag team match went to a draw, went to a time limit draw. A uh, couple technical things in there. One, as you said a minute ago, they they were building towards a hot tag. They cut the ring off. They were working the body part, and then we we get to the point where Dynamite's taking an ass beating. And when you get to the point where the hot tag, all of a sudden he turns around, hits one of the Rougeos with a move, and then just goes over and tags Davy Boy. Like, it's just like some random, it's supposed to be the hot tag, but he just like goes over, tags him, and Davy Boy comes in. And then immediately Davy gets clubbed with something. So it was like this build to a hot tag at one point in the match that didn't happen. And I was like, what the heck happened there? So clinically, I was looking at that, like, what happened here? Uh, again, I agree with Tony. The Rougeos, I, I hated those guys for every reason you were supposed to. Back then, looking at that match, I would love to see 1988 Rujos versus 2023 FTR. I think that would be an absolute clinic of a wrestling match today. 
Yeah, you see a lot of the Rougeos in FTR. I know everybody says brainbusters when you see the, the FTR, but yeah, you see a lot of the Rougeos and some of those really classic teams who who had that ring psychology that is kind of lost with the modern pro. I mean, some teams, yeah, the Usos, they do it. Um, you know, people like that, they're they're excellent at that. FTR is excellent. The Briscoes were excellent at that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, it's it's a uh, it's few and far between by modern standards. So. Yeah, an excellent match to kick off the very first SummerSlam. I mean, there's your trivia question, AJ, if you're listening. Who was in the very first match in the very first SummerSlam? The Rougeos versus the British Bulldogs. And bonus question, what was the outcome? Time limit draw. This is the second SummerSlam, right? No, this is the first one. This is number one, brother. Oh, I think it's Survivor Series. Sorry. Yeah, that, yeah no, Survivor funny. Series started in 87. Got that's ahead right. Of yeah, you're getting Got ahead of yourself, Tony. Um, the next part, we get footage. This is kind I'll of drink. important. Yeah, you drink. <laughs> We get footage of Ron Bass with a vicious attack of Brutus the Barber Beefcake using Fucking his spear. Yeah, he uses his spur to bloody Brutus, and and this means that he has to be removed and replaced in the Intercontinental title match later on, and no one knows who his opponent is. Now, you know, you and you take this with a grain of salt because anything Brutus Beefcake says nowadays is really, really questionable as to the veracity of it. But he was basically like saying the warrior was we're going to talk about the warrior later on, that the warrior was kind of pitching a fit about certain things. And Vince kind of gave him what he wanted and then plugged him into this title match. I don't know. I don't know what happened. But for some reason, Vince didn't want Brutus doing the Intercontinental Championship match. He probably said this guy's kind of flaky. I see this other guy who's on the up upswing. Let's. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But yeah, you get, you know, I think this is the one where like back in the day, DJ, maybe you remember like Br- Brutus was so bloody. They had the big X over the screen to, to block it out because it was too graphic for TV. I watched that happen. I think it was on their Saturday morning show. Oddly enough, I watched it on there as it happened live in, in air right. quotes here because it was all pre-taped. But as it happened and, and initially on that broadcast, they didn't exit out. They exited out on subsequent replays, and I remember being like, holy crap, he's really bloody. And, you know, again, being 15, 14, going on 15 years old, that's like, whoa, that's pretty heavy stuff, especially for WWE, because in NWA, you know, they, you know, take a thumb to the eye and start bleeding, you know, on, on a, every other show. So, yeah, exactly. it was, that was pretty pretty heavy content for WWE at that time. It was, and, it, and, it's, and it's a huge moment in, in SummerSlam history, and it's a huge moment in WWE history going forward as to what that moment means. And I mean, the kayfabe removal of Brutus Beefcake from that match and what transpires redefines WWE for the next, what, two, three years? Basically, yeah. I mean, it, you really it, at the time, it didn't seem like, well, you know, I don't know. But think about if it had gone the other way. But speaking of going the other way, we get the next match. Bad News Brown versus Ken Patera, which unlike the first match, this one's not such a good match. It's pretty sloppy in some places. Bad News avoids the full Nelson, which should not be confused with the hurt lock. Um, and he avoids it at all costs. Then, you know, he's going to avoid Patera as he rushes him in the corner. Patera slams shoulder first into the ring post. Bad News then hits the ghetto blaster to put Patera down for the count. Bad News Brown was still very, you know, he comes off the, Tunney comes off the win at the uh, Battle Royal at WrestleMania 4 where he betrayed Bret Hart. Um, he's still winning. He was like, I remember, you know, I talked about at the outset, you know, uh, in the lead up to to this match, you know, Macho Man had defended the title against um Ted DiBiase a few times got into it with Andre bad news. Brown was the other number one contender who Savage was going against quite frequently during this time frame. 
This match, sloppy though it was, certainly keeps bad news on the trajectory that they want to have him on at this point in time, which is a legitimate, credible threat to Savage. And this is going to continue all the way through the Royal Rumble. Tony, your thoughts on on this match and, and Bad News Brown at this stage of his career? Rest in peace, of course. The match was not good. Um, no, but uh, <laughs> you know, I I'll give you this: two two badass dudes in real life. Um, <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, so, you know, talking about tales from the territories, go back and look up stories, uh, uh on these guys. I mean, Ken Patera did jail time. What for throwing a boulder through a McDonald's here, uh, close to where I live, uh, <laughs> stacking cops as they say. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's just is what it is. A couple of characters that, uh, you really don't see anymore in professional wrestling, a good guy and a bad guy in, in that kind of light. So not too much to talk about there. Yeah, air quoting good guy. When we're talking about Ken Patera. Well, <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I know, yeah, I know, I know he was the face, you know, Ken Patera's a face never seemed to work for me. Uh, DJ, I know, you know, we don't have to talk about the match that much. Cause it is like Tony said is what it is, but your thoughts on Ken Patera and bad news Brown at, in this stage, the summer of 1988. Uh, one thing I found interesting was, and, you know, not that Bad News Brown, not that they ever made like a big pomp and circumstance about his entrance, but when they come back from the uh, the Ron Bass-Bruce Beefcake thing, he's just standing in the ring like he's a job guy. There's no entrance. There's no come to the ring. He's just already in the ring. So back in 1988, I'm like, okay, Ken Patera's coming out. Bad News Brown's taking the L. I don't think everybody had ring entrance still at that time, entrance music at the time. I think a lot, I think we're getting close to half now, but I don't think some guys did. Maybe yeah. some guys who came through without it were like, I don't, I don't want that fucking that shit. Well, but and then again, with Bad News Brown just being like this street fighter type of character, he's not going to come out to the pomp and circumstance. But I just found it interesting upon watching it again the other day that I was like, holy crap, they like, he didn't even get announced. He was just in the ring. And then Patera's music hits, he comes out, the match was what it was, and, and you know, but it, it definitely, like Dave said, it set Bad News Brown, it legitimized him in a way, because I'm like, okay, this guy's serious. And it, moving forward, he becomes a more serious, credible threat to, you know, the Hulk Hogan's, to the Macho Man's. Yeah, absolutely. And you'll see Bad News will feud with both of them leading into uh, WrestleMania five. The third match is, uh, you know, talking about guys who are on an upward trajectory at this point in time. Ravishing Rick Rude. He's got Bobby Heenan, greatest manager of all time. I think all three of us probably agree with that sentiment. Um, he's taken on the junkyard dog who's kind of in, in trending in a different direction at this point in time. Um, you know, it, it's it's a pretty even match, I thought, right up to the point that rude sets up for a flying fist drop on junkyard dog as he's um on the ropes he then this is where things get interesting he pulls down his tights and with jyd airbrushed on on them to you know reveal i guess what is it cheryl roberts is on his trunks underneath the ones that he pulls down uh yeah you know and (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> an irate Jake the Snake Roberts hits the ring, attacks Rick Rude, and causes a disqualification. Uh, this Rude Jake Roberts thing. So yeah, the, the match, the match with with uh, Rick Rude and Jake Junkyard Dog is it, like I said, pretty even. It's all anticlimactic and doesn't matter because the big moment is, of course, Rude removing, you know, pulling down his pants and showing Cheryl Roberts. So that time limit draw that I just alluded to earlier, Tony, between Jake 
and Rick Rude at WrestleMania 4 is now continuing. That feud really kind of gets one of the better ones in the summer of 1988, the feud between Jake the Snake Roberts and Ravishing Rick Rude. And it definitely goes and, and ratchets up a few notches with this whole thing. Uh, DJ, I'll turn it over to you first. I know, you know, Rude and Roberts, to me, I remember this feud really well. It never seemed to get that big payoff uh, that that a lot of us were waiting for. They They had some matches for sure. But you never got that definitive end at a pay-per-view that I think a lot of us wanted between these two tremendous competitors at the time. Isn't that really Jake the Snake's story? Because I would I could yeah. say the same thing about him and Ted DiBiase. Yeah. The feud with him and Ted DiBiase never had a satisfactory conclusion. Um, and the same obviously the same thing's gonna be said here about him and Rick Rude. Uh, just side note, being a big JYD fan, I was often disappointed with his outcomes and his matches. Um, I just I, we popped for the JYD big time, and, and I, while I had no illusions of him beating Rick Rude because Rick Rude obviously had a ton of momentum coming in, and he just looked at the guy. You know, it, at the time, Junkyard Dog's probably on the other side of forty. Rick Rude is just on uh, probably thirty at that point. Looks like a billion bucks. Um, and that the match was solid enough, you know, JYD could still go for what JYD could do. Um, but the, the, the using that as the vehicle to really ignite this feud between Jake and rude was, it was cool. Like, because that really became such a, such a mature storyline. Again, we're talking about WWE who at the time was heavily marketed towards kids. Um, and here we are with this very, very mature storyline. At the, at the height of WWE's popularity, I thought it was the story was incredible, even if the uh, we didn't get the payoff. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's one of those ones and you see that sometimes you still see it in the modern product where they get something to go on and on and, and you you're looking for that big payoff and it never actually happens. But yeah, ravishing Rick Root at this point, I mean, the body, the promos, the music. This guy was a heat magnet and, you know, everything you said, what I'd like to have right now is for all you fat, lazy, out of shape, whatever city he's in, he would then come up with something to, you know, Alabama Airheads or whatever the hell it is. You know, he would always have something clever. And Rude was, uh, you know, you talk about underrated guys. I mean, Ravishing Rick Rude, horrifically underrated, I think, as far as the talent goes. Tony, your thoughts on, on uh, you know, I know the match is what it is, but the Rude Roberts feud, I know you were a little bit young, but you were like, you're saying you're watching WWE at the time. You know what's going on. Um, what do you think, Rude? Horribly underrated, in your opinion? It's interesting you think about nowadays with the different titles that are out there and everything. All A, a lot more guys could have been world champions from back then, right? Um, and it's funny, Hogan didn't want to... if. Maybe if Hogan wouldn't gone to WCW, he would have done business with some of these guys moving forward into the early 90s. But that's just kind of not the way it went. Yeah, Rude, what a phenomenal performer. What a great character. What a great persona. Same thing with Jake Roberts, right? The, the Rick Rude thing is make every you know man jealous and every woman want you and look great and look great doing a good job in the ring. And that's what he did. And then Jake Roberts, who, you know, never wasted a movement or, or a word. Everything was so particular and so impactfully meant to do what it was supposed to while he was doing it. But at the same time, you look at these guys, they're both like they're both heels. Like even Jake, as much as people loved him, he was still very heelish. Right. And Rude, I don't know if the Rude was ever a face as far as after he got to WWF. So. 
uh, maybe that's why this didn't get paid off as well as people wanted it to, but both Hall of Fame talents without a doubt. And Jake's hardly underrated as well. You know, you think about these two guys who are both underrated, but you're right. I mean, people cheered for it, but let's be honest, having a giant python wrap yourself around somebody and choking the life out of you, not the most white meat baby face move that you'll ever see. And right. Jake was notorious for that. So, uh, but yeah, like you're saying, Tony, Jake was uh, not a wasted move, not a wasted, you know, word or anything like that. So like the, the, the face Jake worked because people like seeing the bad guy get the snake thrown on them. Right. But that's still very, you know, with our powers, you know, we, we either die young or live long enough to become a bad guy. So there you go. Right. And Jake was only a face because honky tonk hit him in the back of the head with a guitar. And that's really yeah. the only reason that, that he, he, he was, he was hated up until then. So the, uh, the next match you get the Bolsheviks with the doctor style slick taking on the powers of pain. It's the first time we see the powers of pain. People are talking about demolition being the road warrior ripoffs. <laughs> they had nothing on the powers of pain who were completely. Okay. These guys are complete road warrior ripoffs. They come to the ring with the Baron who's actually Baron Von Raschke, which I had forgot till I watched this, that he was ever had anything to do with WWE, but here he is. And he shows up with them. You know, I thought the Bolsheviks hung in there longer. The, yeah, the claw. Exactly. The Bolsheviks hung in there longer in this match than I expected. Uh, that's for sure. It doesn't last very long. Eventually, Boris Zukov gets caught with a double flying shoulder block and then gets fucking planted by a power slam by the warlord. The barbarian hits Zukov with a flying headbutt, and the powers of pain get the win. And you can see, okay, these guys are earmarked for superstardom. And then, of course, we're going to get you know what we'll talk about at, at Survivor Series with the interesting kind of double turn you know you don't see double turns very often you got one here that's done really really well um kind of your thoughts powers of pain i know complete in total road warrior ripoffs look style everything they just don't have the talent of animal or hawk um but you know what were your thoughts on on these on this team at this point in time and and you know maybe a wasted opportunity with the powers of pain they're the muscle that follows the cool guy that still has muscle and the road warriors are the cool guys with muscle uh that's that's pretty much it right there yeah talent wise charisma wise yeah that's the big difference um but the interesting thing here that and we didn't mention about the rude match is managers heenan was out with rude uh, you get you get Baron. You mentioned that, and you also get Slick. I mean, Slick and Heenan, two of the greatest man. Heenan, obviously, one of the two greatest managers of all time. Slick's got to be up there with a with a lot of the really good ones. But that's kind of my favorite thing from this era. And you know, we're going to come to a time where there's not really any managers, and then there's valets, and then there's not really any managers, and then there's only a couple. So it's fun to watch all these managers work outside the ring just like it's fun now to watch paul Heyman watch a match from the outside of the ring the way they interact with their talent and the way they react to what's happening to their talent is is a fun thing to watch but yeah it's it is you know i, I keep saying that it's not a great match but it's the tag team division and yeah they're they're kind of getting pushed to see where they can go with them and i think we like we said we're going to find out shortly here yeah, this is the golden age of managers. You think about who's out there. You got Heenan, you got Slick, 
you got the mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart. You know, those those that's like the the Hydra almost. Of Liz, Liz. I mean, Liz is there. Yeah, Sherry's going to come in. Not Fuji, too, Fuji. Yeah, Fuji's a big deal. You know, um, so. It is. I mean, there's never. I mean, I. You know, when I first started watching the wrestling, you had Captain Lou Albano, Freddie Blassie, the Grand Wizard. Arguably, you can make an argument that that matches up well with this era. But still, to me, this is a golden era of managers. Uh, DJ, your thoughts on on the powers of pain and and you know, I think like Tony brought up a good point. They couldn't talk. You know, when you compare them to Animal and Hawk, they just couldn't talk. Or even Axe and Smash, they couldn't talk. Right. I, I was familiar with uh, the powers of pain because they were actually in, I believe, NWA before they came over to WWE. Uh, one thing I found interesting, well, I find it interesting now looking back, uh, Vince McMahon has always tried to put his thumbprint on anybody that he hired. And if, even if you were somebody who had a big name established, he would tra- change something about it just to have his own his own thumbprint on it. And he didn't change anything about these guys. He brought them over you know, bought and paid for as they were in another company. And I, I looking back, I find that interesting. Um, I, the that's match they, that's because they could do anything else. Well, and that's exactly it. And when they tried to do something else with them, when they eventually split them up and the barbarian was doing, you know, a very barbarian gimmick. And then the warlord had the thing with the face mask and everything. Um, it just, yeah, they, they weren't great. Um, the poor Bolsheviks, they were on the, the, the downswing anyway. Those guys were getting up there in age. And, you know, again, no illusions about who was going to win that one. Side note about Slick. Slick is one of my all-time favorite managers. And when I got into the business, he was one. I started off as a manager before they let me get in the ring and, and work. I started off as a manager, and he was one of the guys that I took took uh, inspiration from just with the way he would sit there and talk to the crowd and interact with the crowd, react to what's going on in the ring. I took a lot of cues from the doctor of style. He was um, different as you know, you compare him to Heenan who was just calculating and would get involved. Slick, well, they all got involved, but slick was a, you know, he was a doctor style. He did look the part he had. He did as far as wardrobe goes. Yeah, it was slick. And then everybody would, I mean, Jimmy would be great because he would change those great Elvis jackets he had would change and that sort of thing. But Heenan was just, you know, the calculating heelish cowardly one, but, but Heenan, as far as all of them in, in, in ring could go the best of any of them. So, I mean, oh, he that, was a legit worker. Heenan was. Yeah. I mean, and he takes some beatings over the years and, and, you know, speaking of like things like not going as planned, we get this interlude between, uh, after the powers of pain match, you get brother love interviews, hacksaw, Jim Duggan. Um, it doesn't go so well for Brother Love in this segment, does it, DJ? No, it doesn't. He 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 raises the ire of old Hacksaw. Hacksaw basically tells him, if you don't knock it off, you got to count of, what, four or three or something, or I'm going to stick this two-by-four where the sun don't shine. And uh, you know, Brother Love, again, incredible, incredible character. Like, yeah, people, like, you remember Brother Love, but you don't remember how much you hated that guy back then until you go back and watch it now. Right. This is, I get them. This is Bruce Pritchard, right? And Bruce, yes, Bruce Pritchard. Yeah, right. <laughs> Tom jumped into my head for a second. I was like, no, it's not him. Um, but yeah, you know, brother love, man, this character who was just, you know, and, and DJ, you know, at the time, the evangelists and, and the TV evangelists were such a big kind of like trigger point for so many people. And it elicited a definite reaction. And Vince, who always had his finger on the pulse of what was culturally in vogue at the time, did that here. And he interjects brother love and, and this evangelical personality with the, I love you. And, and 
honestly, so many iconic moments happened on the Brother Love Show during this time frame that it, it kind of replaced Piper's Pit as the flashpoint for so many huge events. I mean, Savage getting assaulted by Andre the Giant, Brother Love Show. Um, and that, that of course, sets the whole thing off. Warrior you know, gets insulted later on down the line. Brother Love Show. So, yeah, Tony, Brother Love as a character, I, you know, what are your thoughts on, on him? I mean, this, this segment goes quick, you know, that sort of thing. And like DJ said, Hacksaw threatens him and off we go. But, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people, like you think about underrated stuff, Brother Love maybe a little underrated as well. It was kind of like a, you know, you got the backstage interviewers that let the talent get over on themselves. And you have the brother love segment where he helps them more so with the character get over, whether you're good or bad. It was more definitive back then. And it was kind of a easy way to kind of disguise whatever you wanted to do. Like you said, I mean, you could have a bad guy come out and make him even more bad, or you could have a good guy come out acting good and turn and, all of a sudden he's bad. You could do a lot of different stuff using brother love. And boy, if he didn't draw heat from people, I mean, you know, it, it, people, like you said, it, they reacted to him. He knew how to get the audience to do what he wanted them to do, whoever he was working with or whatever he was trying to put over at the time. So yeah, kudos to him. He's one of the great, another, another great persona, another great character of this time, right? We're in that time of the great characters, are the ones that are able to get the crowd to react the way they want. Yeah, absolutely. And Brother Love was the master at that. I mean, and like you guys are saying, and I think the main thing, anybody listening who hasn't experienced this era of wrestling, and if you go back and watch it and you only know about the modern stuff, some of this stuff might feel really campy and corny, but Jesus, it was from a storytelling perspective, there was never a better time in pro wrestling, my opinion, than right now in, in the WWE. It's- it's funny because the great stories from then and the great stories from now and the great stories in between then and now all have a lot of the same principles of great storytelling of all time from Shakespeare to whoever else you want to pick as you move along the classical, you know, uh, different writing styles to today and the more modern stuff that you see, whether it's a television show or a book nowadays, it's, it's all classical writing tools being used in a story to help you, you know, enjoy it more. Once you're connected, you're going to feel something and that's when it's fun. Yeah. Don't kid yourself into thinking that the bloodline story is completely original. They're borrowing a lot of what's going on right here and bringing it forward. I've said, I said this this week, but I want to say it again. Every time I get a chance to Eric Bischoff, 83 weeks podcast, they do a thing called strictly business on the same feed. He had Tom DeShane's on there who is like, has a degree in like literature and Shakespeare. And he shows you the principles that exactly apply to the story of the bloodline and things in wrestling history. So I think it was on last week, go to your streaming thing and and find that it's so awesome to learn different principles and how stories are told like that. Someone that brilliant along with Eric Bischoff, who told a lot of big stories throughout history as well. I think I said in the chat with you guys last week, it's very hard to tell a quote-unquote original story anymore in any type of entertainment medium, whether it's reading, uh, writing a book, TV, movie, wrestling. Basically, what you're doing now is you're plugging and playing in interesting actors and interesting characters and trying to make those stories work to a, to a modern audience. And I think now it's more based, it's more important to have the right characters in the role. Well, you look at the example right now, of you give the bloodline, right? It's the yeah. look, 
it's the look and the feel and the power of authenticity that Roman comes with and gives off versus Sami Zayn and his unique characteristics. Like who Sami is really comes through in him almost as much as any other wrestler has in history. If you think about it, you get it. You get the Sami thing. And from all the stories you hear, that's the kind of the guy he is. He's the constant motor, you know, a little bit quirky, but you know, super likable after you get to know him and, all you got to do is plug those individualistic original characteristics into those classic storylines. And this is where you get the gold. Yeah, absolutely. I can't agree more with you guys on that, but let's get to it, folks. The, one of the most iconic moments in probably, yeah, WWE history. This one is right up there. I mean, there's been so many moments, but when you really think about this moment and what happens here I don't think it's the it's the most important. I don't know if you could say the most important title change in WWE history, but it's probably the most perfect title change in WWE history. And when you really think about what they did here, um, we talked about it earlier. Brutus is out. Honky Tonk Man is standing in the ring. He's like, get me somebody out here to wrestle. Howard Finkel doesn't know who it is. Honky Tonk says, get me somebody out here to wrestle. I don't care who it is. Superstar Billy Graham starts laughing. He says, there are people in the back that will tear this man apart. And, you know, you're sitting there and you're wondering what's going on. The Warriors music hits. Madison Square Garden absolutely explodes. I, I, I mean, and this is over in 30 seconds. You know, it's basically shoulder block, clothesline, splash, and it's over in a matter of like, yeah, 34, 36 seconds. Ultimate Warrior becomes the new Intercontinental Champion. I, I will say this. Out of all the pops I've ever heard in my many years as wrestling fans, this is right up there in top five is the biggest pop that i've ever heard when warrior dethrones honky tonk man and you know we've talked i know tony and i've talked about it dj we probably haven't talked about it because you've never been on the show before so there you know that sort of thing but um honky (laughs) take take that you son of a bitch yeah damn it um (laughs) honky tonk man you know we've talked about i know on tony's sean dwi on attitude of aggression you can draw a lot of similarities between honky tonk man and roman reigns not from the talent standpoint, I get, and I'm not suggesting that for a second. Um, and and Roman doesn't have the same heat on him that Honky does because a lot of people do acknowledge Roman Reigns. But from the standpoint of a title change being as impactful as it possibly can, Honky Tonk had been the Intercontinental Champion for 16 months and had been able to retain the title through the nefarious means never retaining it legitimately it was always some angle some bullshit peggy sue would get involved the colonel would get involved jimmy mouth of the south heart would get involved somehow some way he would retain so in you probably felt this in 88 when this match took place people like me a lot of it we were desperate for a title change i mean literally desperate somebody's got to beat this guy this is fucking bullshit um when it wasn't Brutus, and I was fine with it not being Brutus, but Ultimate Warrior kind of lets this one win catapults him to an entirely different, like from go, he goes from mid Carter to top of the card in 36 seconds in this match. And it's a combination of that music, that entrance, the dominating way that even it happened so fast, even Jimmy couldn't save Honky Tonk. It happened so fast. Um, the, you got to take your hat off to Honky Tonk Man as the ultimate heel champion and just how he got you to that point where it's like somebody's got to beat this guy to the reaction of that crowd at Madison Square Garden. Like I said, not the most important title change in WWE history, but I challenge you to find a more perfect one. 
Yeah, I'm going to piggyback right off of that and say that 15-year-old Deej being a huge mark for the Ultimate Warrior blew the roof off my house that night. And there is, and, and this is legitimate, there is no 30 seconds in the history of all the wrestling I've watched in my life that I have watched more than the Ultimate Warrior defeating the Honky Tonk Man. The Honky Tonk Man's entire Intercontinental Championship run was genius. And genius for all the reasons that you said. You wanted, you were salivating, you were dying for somebody to finally beat this asshole. And I thought it was going to be Brutus Beefcake. Because I was, I was a fan of Brutus Beefcake back in the day. And Brutus actually, a little side quest here, did one of the coolest things I've ever seen. They were in the match, and Honky's going for the shake, rattle, and roll. And on the, on the roll, Brutus hooks the top rope and honky just kind of spins out of it, takes the bump. And I'd never seen anybody do that with the shake rattle and roll. So I popped big for that, but yeah, getting back to the ultimate warrior, man, just absolutely incredible moment, not only for me as a mark for the ultimate warrior, but an incredible moment for him because again, he was just an undeniable presence and it was a perfect storm of things. The guy had the look, the guy had the charisma, he had the intensity and he had the music. And, and everything lined up perfectly in that moment. And for him, to, you couldn't have booked it any more perfect. I mean, you couldn't have had those two go out and have an actual match. It had to be a squash. It had to be a 30-second squash in and out for those reasons. It won. It popped the crowd. Two, it left people wanting more as they feuded down the line. And that alludes to the, the incident on the Brother Love show that you were talking about a minute ago where Honky finally catches up with the Ultimate Warrior and cracks him in the head with the uh, with the guitar. Yeah, I you know it, it's it is it is a moment like you're saying, DJ. It had to be a squash. You know, it really it you know it it, it absolutely had to be. And again, you know this is this is Vince at his at his absolute best, having his finger on the pulse of what needed to be done, and he called this one perfectly. Tony Warrior dethroning Honky Tonk Man. I mean, yeah, I mean. But it, like DJ said, I watch this match probably 10 times a year because it's an easy five minute digestible thing. It's on YouTube. You don't have to even have a subscription to the cock to watch it. You can cock. just watch it. Yeah, the cock. You can just watch it whenever you want. Uh, your thoughts on this iconic title change, man, and what it did for Warrior and, and just, yeah, from mid card, you know, like Cody Rhodes talking about from undesirable to undeniable from mid card to top of the card. Thirty six seconds. Yeah. You you talk about the comparison with what the the situation Roman Reigns is in right now is is you had to make the right call here on who was going to win and how they were going to win it. There was such a big rub to be had, right? And you talk about how that gave Warrior that rocket ship right up to the top. Hopefully that does somebody, they do it right with Roman Reigns and how this title change will happen whenever it happens. But yeah, the Warrior. I mean, I was the big Warrior fan too. I had the wrestling buddies and Hogan and the Warrior. Warrior always won. Um, we're going to get to six. That's my favorite of all time. But uh, it's just, it's another character that people connected with, right? You didn't have to have a long, you didn't have to have a big attention span or be a gigantic wrestling fan to go, oh, that was cool. That was, that guy's fucking shredded and he kicked that guy's ass and he ran around like a crazy maniac. Yeah, that fucking rocked. Let me know when he's on again. So <laughs> you can see why that would work. Plus, you know, Jim Helweg is a crazy son of a bitch. So 
He sure was. He sure was. And I mean, this, you know, as much as like, and like you're saying, Tuddy, they've got to get the title change with Roman correct because yeah, they are, they're similar, but they're different, you know, from a talent standpoint, from the fact that not everybody hates Roman, not everybody hates Roman, but from the standpoint of whoever dethrones him is going to get a similar comparable push rub. I think that's very accurate, but this also this moment solidified SummerSlam as a legit event. I mean, it, it not only solidified Warrior, but immediately you're like, "Whoa, this event's got some real well, stroke to yeah. it." Yeah, I mean, probably the most important thing that could have happened that day happened, right? Besides, like if if Hogan and Macho would have split that night, right, right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it, it's right up there with the uh, the Mega Powers versus Mega Bucks match is the most important aspect of Summer, arguably even. Not arguably, I'd say even more important in the grand scheme of what happened that night and where things go. Because yeah, um, next match we got to is a WrestleMania four rematch. Tony, we talked about Morocco versus Dino Bravo. I think Morocco Bravo got disqualified at WrestleMania four. Um, you know, Bravo's got Frenchie Martin with him. Bobby Heenan actually joins in on commentary on this match, which he like, what's Bobby doing out here? And you get to see <laughs> early on just how good Bobby is on commentary, which is it is phenomenal. Um, the match itself, it's okay. Morocco tries to slam Bravo. Bravo's feet is going to hit the ref, knocking him out. When Morocco tries to, to go for this move again, Bravo counters this into the side suplex, and he gets the win. So Dino Bravo still kind of staying relevant at this point in time. The Rock Don Morocco kind of, uh, you know, takes it in the shorts a little bit in this one. Not a whole lot to see here, I don't think. I, You know what? I had just a quick thought here. It would have been interesting because you talk about Bobby on commentary. It would have been interesting if it wasn't King and it was Bobby with Jr. during the Attitude Era to be able to see what Bobby could have done with that type of um, freedom oh, yeah. and see if he could have been that, you know, in, in his way. Because it would have been different from King. And I'm not saying, like, King and Jr. are my favorite probably combo just because that's really that Attitude Era versus NWO. But on the other side, you did have Bobby with Tanay and Shivani, and it was solid. But Bobby with Jr. that would have been really interesting because I think he would have been... He would have had a little sharper jabs at JR <laughs> and it would have been fun to hear him be, um, you know, a, a little more adult non PC. But as far as this match and the significance of talking about it, I, I think I've already talked about what I wanted to. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and it's, it's sorry, not, Dino. It's sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's right. you're, on, you're on your way out. You're, you're on your way out pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Dino. Yeah, gets I, I thought it was a, a, go ahead, DJ. Go ahead, Dave. I'm sorry. No, go ahead, man. Uh, no, I was just going to say it was a fine sprint of a match. A couple of heavy hitters, a couple of slugfest guys. I always popped for Morocco. Not that I, you know, thought he ever should have been world champ or at the top of the card or anything, but he was one of those guys who brought the fire and you know got the crowd kind of riled up in his matches. I always enjoyed that. So that's it. This was a fine sprint of a a match somewhere in the you know the middle of the card. Talk about underrated guys. Morocco, what, two-time Intercontinental Champion, if I remember correctly. I mean, he was really, really good as an IC champion as a heel. Absolutely. I think he was the first IC champ I remember when I first started watching WWE. Right, right. Yeah, I don't know what – Patterson was the first. I don't know if Patera dethroned him. Maybe it was Patera. (laughs) I don't remember, but it doesn't matter. So – yeah, you know, this is a this is an okay match at this point in time, but let's get to the I next. I might have been Pedro Morales. I don't I know Morocco dethrones Morales at some point in time. Somebody'll have to Google this thing. I I think it went from Patera Patterson to Patera and then maybe it was Pedro who dethroned Patera. I don't remember exactly, but the next match is really good. 
Excellent match. The Hart Foundation takes on Demolition for the uh, WWF Tag Team Championships. Um, this gets interesting because in the interim from WrestleMania 4 to here, Bret Hart turned face at WrestleMania 4 in the Battle Royal. The Hart Foundation still under contract to Jimmy Hart, allegedly, but they basically kick him to the curb. So in this match, Jimmy Hart comes down to the ring with Demolition and Mr. Fuji. And this is an excellent tag team match. I really think this was really well done. The um, the Hearts are going to work the hot tag really well in this match. Madison Square Garden, They after what happened with the Warrior, they are red hot for this match. They want to see another title change. Jimmy Hart's going to make the difference in this match. Brett is going to set up Smash for a pal driver. Jimmy Hart's going to run to ringside. He'd been chased away earlier in the match. He runs back to the ringside. He then tosses Axe, his megaphone. Axe is going to crack Brett Hart in the back of the head. Smash covers Brett for the pin. Demolition retains the title. This will not be the last time that we see these two teams get into it over the WWF Tag Team Championship over the years. But as far as like truly solidifying the Hearts' faces that worked and the crowd getting behind them, this match established that. Demolition still established as dominant tag team champions. Yes, they retained through nefarious means. Shout out to Christopher Platt. But it's still, you know, it's an excellent match. The crowd was really into this. You know, the match before it was kind of eh, lackluster. This was anything but that. I thought it was an excellent tag team title match. Two of the best teams. I mean, you're talking. This is also the golden area, golden era of tag teams. There are no, there's never a better time in WWE than right now for tag teams. These were two of the best. DJ, your thoughts on this demolition versus Heart Foundation match? I was so pissed off by the end of this because I was fully in on the Heart Foundation. Like I legit thought they were going to win, and I was so. And for all the reasons I was supposed to be, you know, I bought into it the like you're supposed to be absolutely pissed off. One thing I'll say about demolition, and this often gets lost in the the fact that they were a uh, road warriors knockoff. Those two dudes could fucking go. Oh, yeah. I mean, e- even at the age they were, because at that point they were both on the other side, probably closer to 40 or 50. Because I know I think Axe was older than Smash. Um, Hennig is way Hennig's a lot older than Barry Darcy, who would continue on as what Repo Man after this. Uh, Repo yeah, Man, was. the Blacktop Bully. He had he had a few other gimmicks after this fell apart. But they really were awesome workers, and that gets so lost in, in the 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 commentary about them being ripoffs of the Road Warriors. And I really think that's why they dominated the tag team division like they did because they really were that good. And this this is showcased in that match with the Heart Foundation. Isn't Axe, Axe's real name's Bill Eady, right? Isn't that who Axe is? I thought that was Larry Hennig. No, no, it's not Larry Hennig. That's that's Kurt's dad. No, Larry Hennig wasn't part of Demolition. No, Larry Hennig was I not. I think Demolition's Bill Eady, if I remember correctly. But, Tony, you've oh, got access bad. to Google. He's looking it up. Um, my bad. <laughs> Tony, your, your thoughts on it? I'll look it up. What are your thoughts he, on it? He's this? taking that Axe thing a little far. Wasn't that uh, Larry the Axe Hennig? Huh? Yeah, Larry the Ex-Hedic. My bad. I'm getting yeah. shit. <laughs> he, he, was, he was connecting some weird dots there to get to that. My bad. All right. Yeah, <laughs> see, the old man still knows a few things here and there. But, uh, uh, yeah, Tony, your thoughts on this on this tremendous match that we got out of out of these two you know, teams? No, just enough to be dangerously stupid. Um, no, you know, what's interesting is uh, you talk about the tag team titles, and, and these are two of the best the hearts that already been it. Demolition wins the tag titles like three or four times. They're like the number, they are the number one tag team in, in the late eighties there while they're having their reigns. They're WWE's number one tag team. And I never growing up got the vibe that they were a ripoff of, of, of the Legion of doom or I didn't or, either. 
road warriors. Like they had, they both had face paint, but those guys had just a little and the crazy hair and they had shoulder pads. And once they took them off, that was it. And demolition was more of the black hood diamond stud or silver studs with all black and, and the full face paint. Right. So to me that, that was completely different, but like you said, they could cut a promo good or bad and not seem cheesy as fuck and tripping over their words. They worked in the ring Hearts come up short this time, but it foreshadows two years from now we're going to get at SummerSlam in 1990 where they're actually going to be able to climb that demolition mountain. So it's just always good storytelling between these two, and then you throw in the British Bulldogs, Strike Force, a whole list of other tag teams that were around that were decent as well that you may not be thinking of. um, What, North-South Connection, Soul Patrol, as we go back. Power and Glory came out, you know, around this time, and that's later on down the line. Yeah. So, and then the Rockers come in here and win slash don't win and things of that nature. Right. But, you know, yeah, just a great time for tag team wrestling. And this was a really good match. I mean, shit, when you have guys, a tag team like Demolition that can work so well as a tag team, and then you have one of the greatest individual workers of all time with another guy who was a great tag team worker in the Anvil. Um, Anvil's probably really underrated as a worker and as a as a being the the beef of the tag team that that dude was not huge he was like the six foot five guy that played like he was six eleven he you know yeah he's yeah. Like, he, go ahead dj i was just gonna say i was agreeing with tony anvil was horribly underrated like his talent really got overshadowed by how crisp and how smooth the hitman was and of course the, the commentary led into that because it was always about bret hart and the excellence of execution that sometimes how good jim neidhart was got buried He's like the anchor. I mean, the Hart Foundation is not just Bret Hart and Jim the Anvil Neidhart. There's various iterations. Owen and the Anvil teamed up for a while, if I remember correctly, and Davey Boy and the Anvil. The Anvil was the constant. But but as far as the tag team champions, the the Hart Foundation as the tag team, that's who I'm specifically. It's Bret Bret and and Jim. Right. No one one else. Like, did Bret Bret and Owen never won tag team gold, right? I don't think they did. No. So that they was, lost that match where Owen turned on. No, 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 that was something different. Never mind. Why do Owen and Yoko? They they no, they did. Teams. They lost the match because that was the whole crux. Why didn't you just make the tag? And then Owen took him out. And then he kicked his leg out of his leg. Yep. That's right. Yep. That's right. I remember that. So <laughs> Ray Ray's on there shaking his head. <laughs> BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. 
Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Hey folks, PC Tony here. Thanks to our new partnership with Angry Lemonade, you can save 10% on physical products and digital commissions using the promo code CHAIRSHOT. Head to angrylemonade.net to check out their amazing catalog of products and services. Use the promo code CHAIRSHOT to save 10%. That's angrylemonade.net. All right, so we took a little bit of a hiatus there because we had to record, record some nerd stuff. Uh, and in the interim, we've lost one PC Tunny, but DJ's still here. Tunny's probably still pissed about all the flack he was getting in his ultimate fantasy draft that um, the rest of us were giving him a hard time about DJ. But <laughs> I don't know. You'll have to listen to Bandwagon Nerds to uh, find out how we did with our ultimate all-time teams. But DJ's still here. We are going to finish off the review of SummerSlam 88. And, uh, and you know, then we'll take a break. And, of course, we'll come back and finish up Survivor Series 88. Um, so that sort of thing. But when we left off, we'd left off talking about the Heart Foundation and Demolition. Picking things back up, we get the first appearance on pay-per-view of the... I think this is the first... Yeah. First appearance on pay-per-view of the Big Boss Man with Slick. And this is, of course, Boss Man in the Cobb County, Georgia, the correctional officer, the big time heel that he was at this point in time, taking on Coco Beware, who has definitely transitioned into jobber to the stars at this point in time. The sacrificial lamb putting over everybody. Um, Coco in this match, he gives it a good go. He um, basically like electrifies Madison Square Garden. He has this big like missile drop kick that connects and the crowd pops big for that. He actually gets a two count on the Boss Man, but... Look, boss man, too big, too powerful, catches Coco with his side slam and gets the win and then is going to nail Coco in the ribs with his nightstick after the match, which is kind of like a a uh, staple of the big boss man at this point in time. You know, we're still a ways away from the boss man becoming a ma- a bigger threat, but he, of course, is going to play a big role in the disintegration of the mega powers when he teams with the one-man gang transitions into Akeem. The Twin Towers are born. They're, of course, in that big match that we'll talk about in Chapter 5 of this thing. Um, and when we talk Royal Rumble in WrestleMania, Royal Rumble 89 in WrestleMania 5. But, you know, I mean, this this was servable, serviceable match just to put the boss man over, get him on the map, and show what a what a, uh, a devastating opponent he could be. Yeah, I got to agree. This was a really good out, you know, outing on the boss man. I remember as a kid not being overly impressed because, you know, I was looking at the guy. He doesn't look like much. He's, yeah. you know, he's a he's a big, hefty kind of a fat guy. But man, could he move like looking back? I appreciated the boss man much more as I got older than I. But again, I looked at him like I was supposed to at 15 years old. This guy's a heel. He's beating up Coco Beware. Coco Beware's the baby face. So, you know, I bought into all that. But I, I remember initially not being overly impressed with the boss man just because I didn't get it. And it wasn't until years later that I appreciated how good he was. Always, always hated to see Coco do the job for anybody. He was a guy who could who could light the crowd up, who could really electrify things and really, really get you get you into things. And again, he had one hell of a missile drop kick. Um but yeah, I just I, this was the right call though. It was a good introduction to the roster to the pay per view for um, you know for the big boss man. And it's interesting when you talk about the mega powers. We talked earlier about um, 
Bad News Brown and just how all these little small, seemingly insignificant parts and pieces of SummerSlam became much bigger parts and pieces of that mega power story down the road. I think that's the bigger thing. That's the bigger takeaway from this than the boss man's debut. Right, right. And, and yeah, I mean, a guy like the boss man, like Bad News Brown, like Akeem, they're all, you know, serviceable cogs in the wheel, so to speak, of what's going on with this mega power storyline, giving credible opponents that you can match up against guys like Savage and Hogan who further that story, you know, here's our common enemy and here's what we have to do involving these guys. And and yeah, boss man is one of those guys. So I was kind of like you when he first kind of came on the scene. I'm like, who is this dude? Why is he wearing yeah. this stupid outfit? This is, you know, and I, I love like, you know, Gorilla Monsoon always say, that outfit's got to be illegal. And, and Jesse Ventura would just downplay it. But yeah, you, like you're saying, he was a really he, a big guy who could really move, uh, probably a little underrated as far as in-ring skill, could definitely talk. He was a good guy. Oh, talker. absolutely. Absolutely to all those. So but what, one thing I found funny, yeah, Vince McMahon's got a police officer playing a heel. Vince was on to something 30-something years ago. It really was, yeah. A correctional <laughs> officer abusing his power. Huh. Vince, what, what did you know that we didn't know? So uh, interesting. Uh, after this match, Warrior he gets kind of his first kind of iconic promo as the Intercontinental Champion. You know, it's the first time that he really... Because, I mean, up until this point, Warrior was known, but it wasn't like this. You know, and on the heels of, of course, that iconic moment with Honky Tonk Man that we talked about earlier... He cuts his first promo as the Intercontinental Champion, and you see some of the mannerisms and some of the warriorisms. I could, I should say, right off the bat. You know, it's not load up the, you know, the rocket ship with the jet fuel and all that sort of thing. But it's a warrior promo, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's I. There's so many different stories as to who really was the meat and potatoes of that character. I know his side of the argument was he put everything into that. You know, Vince's side of the argument was, you know, he had his own creative input. But I, I really think they were on to something so special there and so unique for its time. I mean, yes, it was a larger than life character, but it it, it was just it's hard to explain because he, he wasn't he wasn't a heel, but he was an unhinged baby face. And that was like the what what was going to eventually set the stage for people to become that unhinged baby face that people still gravitated towards and, you know, just like identified with. Yeah. The warrior is a tough one. Cause like, like you're saying, he, he had a lot of, um, a lot of like the mannerisms that would not kind of, I mean, when you compare and contrast him to Hogan or even Savage during his baby face run, I mean, Savage as a heel was doing his best work and Savage as, as a face was, he was fine. You know, that sort of thing. I mean, he, he great talent, obviously, but it never kind of, to me, Looking back, I mean, at the time, I loved Macho Man, you know, and I still do. Yeah. But, you know, looking back now, it's like, well, he wasn't the most effective face in the world just because, you know, he was he was arrogant. He was pompous. He kind of, you know, he was most effective when he was that. Yeah, I guess misogynistic prick that he could be during this time. Yeah. Frame. But um, but yeah, Warrior was when you compare and contrast him to Hogan, Hogan, who was just as straight as they could come. You know, right down the middle, there was no gray areas, prayers, vitamins, you know, believe in yourself, so forth and so on. And Warrior was just like you're saying, very unhinged. And all these promos were just bombastic to a fault. You know, they're just way out there with what is this guy talking about? Um, but he sure was colorful and he looked the part. And it, during a time frame where, you know, where they needed a third guy, you know, that you had Hogan, you had 
Macho, you really needed somebody like Warrior. He he really took it. I mean, you got to give him credit for taking advantage of the moment, and he did. Absolutely. So the uh, next match we get is a pretty good one. Hercules taking on Jake the Snake Roberts. We talked about Jake earlier. We saw him in the uh, match with Rick Rude where, you know, he caused Rude to uh, or caused J- uh, JYD to get disqualified. But in this match with Hercules, Hercules really, he dominates much of the match. And I thought what Herc did great was he does a fantastic job of avoiding the DDT at all costs right to the very end. When he goes for a body slam, Jake reverses this into the DDT and he gets the win. Damien makes an appearance after the match, but an unconscious Hercules, he doesn't ever realize it, and that's okay. Um, But yeah, I I think, you know, I've said this before. I think I asked Honey about this. I'll ask you about it, DJ. We talk about wrestlers being over. We talk about heels being over. Was there ever a move that was more over than the DDT? Not a one. The DDT... uh I would say a close second today is the RKO out of nowhere, but the DDT still tops them all. That Jake Jake got that thing over. It was literally at one point probably the most over thing in the company, and I would I would rank that up there with Hulk Hogan. Yeah, I mean, any time you saw Jake, crowd just screaming for the DDT like passionately, and when he hits, there's always this big pop. And and I used to love back in the day Bobby Heenan lobbying to have the move, you know, banned because it was so dangerous. Yep. Now everybody and their mother. <laughs> does a DDT or a variation of it. And it's, it sucks so bad because it is such a great move. And I, I think, you know, um, who was, who was I had on the show? I had a, on attitude of aggression. I think it was the grappler. It was Len Denton, who was the first one who uh, I think it was either him or maybe it was Del Wilkes. I don't remember, but they were telling the story about Jake inventing the DDT and how it was kind of just an accident because they were all sweaty and perspiring and it just kind of happened, you know, and, and, yeah. it, and it caught fire. But yeah, the DDT was just as, and, and, you know, even to this day, you look at guys who deliver that move. Nobody delivered it like Jake, even to nah. this day, he it was the most effective at it. Some of that. And this is a, this is a, again, a lost nuance was Jake's body language. Like calling that guy, Jake, the snake was like, aside from the snake gimmick and the boots and everything, he moved so fluid and so smooth and so snake-like that you just knew when he finally when he finally hit the DDT. And then you think about the DDT in principle, looking at it in kayfabe, you're literally dropping somebody on their forehead. Like, that's lights out. Yeah. And that's good night. And, and But the guy giving it, Paul Heyman talked about this on the Stone Cold podcast before it was even the Broken Skull Sessions. That was one of, you know, um, Austin had the same argument you did. It's not a finisher anymore. And Heyman made a good point. He's like, well, you have to think about the person giving it. He's like, imagine Mark Henry putting you in a side headlock. You sell that much differently than you would for Drew Gulak putting you in a side headlock. You know, Mark Henry's, you know, damn near 400 pounds and he's all muscle. And Drew Gulak's, I don't know, about an ounce heavier than I am. And I'm not a big guy. <laughs> so it, when you look at it, that's that that context and you play along Jake's Jake's DDT was incredible. And there's, yeah, that's, that's every reason why it was a finisher for him. Yeah. And I, I like the parallel you drew to the RKO out of nowhere, because like the thing about the DDT, Jake would set it up as that with that short arm clothesline <clears throat> as the precursor to that. And you knew when he hit that, you knew it was coming next. And Randy, of course, has the draping DDT and then that yeah. goes in the RKO. 
you know, Roman's got Superman punch spear, that sort of thing. Those are the really effective ones. I mean, like, you know, when people are setting up for their finisher, you know, Drew does the countdown for the Claymore. Savage would get on the top rope and point to the sky. But yeah, it's not there. It wasn't as common where somebody would have, you know, and if you anybody plays WWE 2K22 knows there's a signature move and then there's the finisher. And right. yeah, Jake had that with the short arm clothesline and the DDT. But but yeah, I, I can see that what you're saying, that it was just a question of who was delivering it and why Jake's was so much more devastating than. And I guess you could say Jake's Jake and everybody else is just like them. So, yeah, you know, exactly. that's exactly it. So let's get to it. Let's talk about the main event of SummerSlam 88. It is the Mega Bucks. Andre the Giant, the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. They come down the ring. Bobby Heenan's with them. Virgil's in the, with them. They're taking on the Mega Powers, which, of course, we all know. The Macho Man Randy Savage, the WWF champion at the time. Hulk Hogan. They've got their manager, Elizabeth. Jesse Ventura is made the special referee, DJ, because he's the only one who can contain these assholes. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> There was no Mike Tyson back then, so... That's right. And, 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 and yeah, exactly. And before the match even gets going, you know, they're showing all this stuff. We see footage of Jesse uh, taking the money given to him by the million dollar man, which is one of these situations where you realize that, you know, Jesse, not surprising. Jesse's on the take, you know, and, and that, that was like surprising. Absolutely. Nobody, especially in 88. You knew that. Oh, Jesse's they had the great announce team that, you know, we we see it a little bit today. Corey tries to be a heel announcer, but he's not Jesse Ventura. And Michael Cole's yeah. not Gorilla Monsoon, but, you know, you kind of see it here. But that's the only reason that superstar Billy Graham is probably doing this um, event is because Jesse's in the main event. So um, that notwithstanding, you know, it's another, you know, Warriors match. One thing is probably the, one of the most iconic matches. This has got to be considered, you know, two, three, four, five, as far as the most iconic matches in SummerSlam history, because it's the first main event ever. And, yeah. you know, I tell you, Madison Square Garden continues to be absolutely electric for this whole thing. They're they're on fire the whole match. Um, it's a pretty good back and forth match between, let's be honest, these are four of the all-time greats. I, I, I mean, they're all Hall of Famers, and they should be. They're all tremendous competitors, and they should be. And, of course, you got the iconic ending to this match where you got Savage and Hogan are on the ring floor, Fall, or they've been wiped out of the match at some point. Liz gets up on the ring apron, and I mean, everybody's seen this a million times, right? She gets up on the apron to break the count because I think Hogan and Savage were in danger of getting counted out of this match at this point in time. Liz, you know, she removes her dress, exposing the red panties that, uh, you know... <laughs> it's just... Uh, you know, Savage is going to, uh, he, he, you know... When she does this, and I love the fact that, you know, Randy and Hulk kind of come up to the floor and they see it and they kind of do the Mega Powers handshake. Savage is then going to hit Andre with a uh, double axe handle, knocking Andre out of the ring. DiBiase gets hit with the flying elbow drop and the leg drop. And then the great part, it matches over. Jesse Ventura does not want to do this three count. He gets the one, he gets the two, he stops, and it's actually Savage who forces Jesse Ventura's hand down to make the third count and the mega powers prevail in this match. We'll talk about the post match and the first inklings of problems in just a moment, but the match itself, I thought, you know, you, like I said, four of the all time greats in this match chemistry 
unparalleled between these four guys in this match. They are just fantastic. Every even with Andre and, and Andre not liking Randy so much. Andre, of course, much different feelings towards Hulk than he had towards Randy Savage. And I just thought they pulled off a great match. And yeah, the thing with Liz at the end is something you don't get out of your head anytime soon. As like you're you know young men that we were at the time. Um, yeah, that sticks with you for a lifetime, right? <laughs> It, it does. That's uh, yeah. That was. I remember being again, fifteen years old. And as I talked about at the beginning of the episode, I'm in that coming of age, you know, at fifteen years old. You didn't see, and you I didn't see, see this kind of stuff back then. They, you never you saw this. Yeah, you didn't. I mean, there was a little bit of it in like the NWA. They were different, and, and some of it was rather inappropriate. But on WWE TV, absolutely not. And, and to see this was just like wow. Just fifteen year old me was like, "Wow!" Now, sidebar on that, my dad hated that finish, and I talked to you guys earlier about how hard it was. I had to fight for my dad to actually even order this pay per view. He was so pissed off by the end. He's like, "She's up here showing panties. These guys are shaking it at, at ringside. This isn't wrestling." I'm like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> like my dad is having a total conniption on the couch, but it, the whole thing really was. It encapsulated WWE's sports entertainment. When you look at the spectacle that this match was, um, one couple things that I took out of it, Andre was on the decline physically, but he could still, he was moving around in there. Like, I, you know, I was watching Andre going after people. He still had his wheels under him. How much he was fighting through at whatever pain he was in, I don't know, but he was still moving around pretty good. He, he looked for his age and for his health. He looked as good as one can. Um, DiBiase, just consummate professional, consummate professional, that guy. He really was. He had great chemistry with just about anybody he got in the ring with. Um, just made Hogan and Savage look like absolute, just top-tier athletes. One thing about the match that I really liked is when it started off, it started off with Savage, and my first thought in my head was like, okay, this is going to be a night off. Because I would forgotten the match. I hadn't watched the match in probably 25 years before I watched it the other night. And so my memory of it was a little foggy other than the panties and, and Hogan and Savage winning. So I started off. I'm like, Oh, here we go. This is going to be pretty much Savage taking all the heat Hogan going in for the hot tag and then going home with this thing. And then about two minutes in Hogan gets in and Hogan takes a fair amount of heat. Like he, he took a bit of a beating here. I'm like, okay, he's doing the favor here for Randy. He's going to let Randy get the hot tag, let Randy get, you know, shine a little bit. So, and at the time, for Hogan, that was kind of unheard of. Now that parlays into the after, you know, the shenanigans afterwards that eventually leads us, you know, to the point we're going to get to down the road. But that those were just some of the takeaways that I had from that match, you know, looking at it clinically. Yeah, and I think like DiBiase and, and Randy Savage had tremendous chemistry. Anytime they were in the ring together, uh, they were they were just money. But you're right, Hogan does a lot, you know, Hogan works a lot more in this match than he normally does. And he... He lets DiBiase and Andre. Andre's in there sparingly, I would say. They they used Andre effectively. They used him sparingly, but for maximum effectiveness when he was in the ring. And I think that's what you want to do. But, yeah, I mean, going back to Liz, I mean, at this point in time, Elizabeth is, like, you know, looked upon, revered in a completely different way. The, the consummate lady is yeah. how she was perceived at this point in time. And it's what made her sympathetic. Whenever Randy was a douchebag towards her, you're like, come on, that's Elizabeth. She's the, and when Randy won the title, her becoming the first lady of wrestling elevated her to a different level. So to see her, you know, expose herself in this manner and you're like, holy shit. Wow. Um, yeah. 
And yeah, I mean, DiBiase's reaction when she he's just standing in the ring, staring at her with his mouth open, like, what the hell is this? You know, even Andre's kind of like, wow. Um, he's flabbergasted. He, he is. They're flabbergasted, but it sets up perfectly. Now, post-match, we get the first problem sighting here. As Hogan is holding Liz with one arm, celebrating with her, panties exposed. Uh, you get the first awkward glance from Randy Savage in the direction of Hulk Hogan, foreshadowing where we're going with this thing. And I remember watching it when it happened uh, all those years ago. I mean, my memory's faded, but I do remember this thinking to myself, "Uh oh, there's some trouble here. Uh, you know, and it makes perfect sense with with Randy, who he was in real life. And, and I guess we should mention at this point in time, we didn't talk about it earlier, but as we're recording this, um, we lost Lanny Poffo this week, Randy Savage's brother. We did. Uh, um, I still not. Have they said what happened to him? I don't know what the cause of death was. He was still fairly young. He was only 68 years old, which yeah. is really not that old. I, I haven't read into it, so I don't know. Yeah. So a tragic occurrence this week. And our condolences, of course, to the Poffo family, whatever remains of them. There's not much left at this point, unfortunately. But, um, you know, getting back to Randy, we know that his kayfabe approach to Elizabeth and his real world approach to Elizabeth were pretty much one in the same. He portrayed himself very jealous on screen. He was very jealous off the screen, but this moment where he just kind of, it's not this become more pronounced. Like we're going to see survivor series 88. It's more pronounced Royal rumble. We have a big bro- blow up between these guys in 89. And then of course, you know, we're off and running, but it's just in this moment, it's the first in the, you know, these guys should be on top of the world. They should be celebrating. Randy's jealousy begins to get the better of him already. And kudos to Randy Savage for just it, kudos to WWE for the slow burn of this storyline, which I still say is the best storyline in wrestling history. No disrespect, Ray, and your bloodline theory, but um, I still go with the mega powers explosion as, as a number one. But, um, you know, your, your thoughts on this, DJ, just that little teeny moment there. It's, it's very subtle. It's not really pronounced, but it's just it is. It's an awkward glance by Savage towards Hogan. And you know immediately, kind of, this is where they're going. Yeah, I, I remember thinking that at the very end. I, I think my first thought to myself was, oh, crap. You know, thinking back then, I'm like, ah, crap. You know, because I was on board for babyface Randy Savage. I loved it. You know, and like, you know, and I get everything you're saying. He Facts, he was more effective as a heel. But I loved the Randy Savage babyface run. So when I saw that first little thing, I'm like, ah, crap, no. Because I know where this is headed. This is headed to Hogan eventually taking the belt off of Randy. So, and I was starting to reach that age where I was starting to tire of Hulkamania. Um, So I wanted something fresh. Randy was fresh and I was getting it and I wasn't ready for it to end. And I knew that it was going to end somewhere down the line, whether it was WrestleMania or whatever the case may be. Um, I will say this, this is classic, brilliant, brilliance by Vince McMahon and and not only brilliance by Vince McMahon, but brilliance in knowing which people could pull this story off with the little nuances, Randy subtly looking over and you, you just, and it, it like I said, it's nothing major and it's almost a blink. If you, you'll miss it, but this was the, the story because Vince is a master storyteller and a lot of people don't give him enough credit for that. And I think that's what he looks for in his talent. You can be as athletic as they come. And you can go out there and perform the moves perfectly. But if you can't tell the story that he's trying to tell on screen, he's not going to give you the time. 
And that's why he gravitated towards the people he did. And in this particular instance, he had two of the best to ever do it in what I, and I agree with you in probably the best wrestling storyline ever told. Yeah. And and I, I should clarify, like, I remember when this was going down, when the mega powers were exploding, there were, I mean, I was like you, I, I do think Savage is more effective as a heel, but that doesn't mean that I wasn't all in on babyface Randy Savage at this time. So much so that, and I think that's why the story is so great that it literally broke my heart to cheer, to have to root against him. And, and, you know, you, you kind of like, from my standpoint, when it happens at WrestleMania five, you had to pick a side. You couldn't root for both of them, obviously. And, and I felt like, you know, Hulk is, I felt strongly Hulk had been robbed of the title, never lost the title. Savage, you know, benefited from what happened. And then what he did to Hulk and Liz, I've got to root for Hulk Hogan in this match, but it broke my heart to do so. Because so yeah. many of us loved Randy Savage and were so invested in him, in him as a champion and a babyface that when it went down that way, and that's some of the best storytelling, when it really affects you emotionally and breaks your heart, and that's what the the you know the disintegration of the mega powers was. And and you know, they're gonna disintegrate more at Survivor Series eighty eight, which we will talk about the uh when we come back on this. Um but yeah, I, I think you know, you couldn't have really got for a, a first pay-per-view, um, you know, the first SummerSlam ever, this is probably as strong as you can probably get. DJ, I'll put you on the spot, man. I do this a ton all the time. On a scale of 1 to 10, where would you play SummerSlam 1988? I would firmly put it in my top three um, for, for a variety of reasons. One, it was the inaugural event. Two, the spectacle around it, the mega powers, the ultimate warrior moment, um, the... The just the the matches themselves were a couple of really good work rate matches in there. Like we talked about the the, the opening match with the Bulldog and the Rougeaus. We had uh, Demolition in the the Heart Foundation, which was really really good. Um, and the crowd, the crowd. A lot of times we talk about the dead spot in a pay per view. Like you'll have a really really hot match, and then the one that follows it is just like the crowd's either exhausted, they're not into it, they're out getting a hot dog, whatever the case may be. I didn't really see any dead now. I didn't see any dead spots, and that may be a little unfair because it's Madison Square Garden, New York City, and they're always hot for WWE. So that may have, again, smart booking and genius on Vince McMahon's part. I want a hot crowd. I want a crowd that's going to be hot for the whole thing because this is the first pay-per-view. We're doing it in Madison Square Garden. But a lot of times nowadays you do. You have that the crowd is here, and then they're here, and then they're here, and then they're here. They're up and down throughout the whole card. They were hot from the opening bell to the final salvo. They were. They were. Uh, so on a scale of one to ten, what would you? Uh... Three. It, it's no, no. Three. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, oh. like from from ten being the best, nine, eight. You know, I, I guess you know people like a, a star rating system. Like I'll t- I'll put it. This, let me do go first. I would rate this an eight out of ten. For for me, eight is eight is what I had in my head. Okay. Absolutely, yeah. eight out of ten. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some like you said, there's some matches in the middle. You know, the the Bravo Morocco match wasn't a masterpiece. You know, Boss Man Coco was what it was. You know, that sort of thing. But yeah, the Warrior beating Honky Tonk in one of the probably what top three iconic SummerSlam moments of all time. I mean, it's, yes. it's right up there. Um, and then of course the Mega Powers and and the first you know that big that big victory for Hulk and in in uh, uh, Macho <laughs> Jesse Jesse Ventura you got to kind of give him credit for his role in that match as well he did a really good job of selling he that was crucial to that story and what i thought just real quick another again nuance i like nuance in matches 
Jesse readjusting the tag ropes to the neutral corners for no particular reason other than he was being an asshole. Right. Right, exactly. <laughs> I forgot about that. He does he's like, wait, what the hell are you doing? That, that makes no difference at all. So, but it was classic Jesse Ventura heel. He's like, I'm going to do this because I'm in charge, and there's no real good reason for me to do it. But God damn it, I want to do it, so we're going to do it. And Hulk getting in his face, and Jesse poking him in the chest, and Hulk just kind of like, and then he just says, "All right, all right, whatever," and walks. You're, away. The, you're in charge, you're pal. in charge, Jess. So that's fine. But yeah, it was uh, it was tremendous in in so many ways, and. And a great event, and I mean, if you wanted to put your stamp on SummerSlam as a Big Four event, here you go. I mean, this this is as good as it gets. DJ, I want to thank you for being on the show. I really hope I'm I'm hoping, counting on you coming back for the SummerSlam '88 aspect of things when we come back. For the listeners out there, they'll hear a commercial. For the rest of us, for the real people, we don't know. It might be a week, you know, before we get back to this thing. But hey, it's all kayfabe or not. DJ, where can you let people know? Where can they check you out on what you got going on on thechairshot.com and all the uh, projects that you may have circulating the interwebs? All right. Currently, I can be found on thechairshot.com. We are the Mindless Wrestling Podcast. We also have a little YouTube channel. We post little nuggets from the show, sometimes a little pre-show stuff. That is the Mindless Wrestling Podcast on YouTube. And also, you can find me on Twitter at the Mindless Pod. There you go, folks. Come back. We'll be back. We'll talk Survivor Series at 1988. Hopefully, DJ will be here so you can hear two 50-year-old guys reflect on what they remember about pro wrestling in 1988, which is always fun. DJ, thank you so much for being a part of this show. I'm really hoping you'll be back for the second half of this uh, chapter. Thank you again, my friend. Hey, thank you for having me. And yeah, I will be here for the Survivor Series 88 talk. Awesome, man. Thanks. All right, sir. This is your boy Kenny Killer telling you to make sure you check out thechairshot.com, bringing you breaking news, interviews, podcasts galore, everything pro wrestling. Make sure you check it out, thechairshot.com. All right, welcome back. It is a, for you guys listening to the episode, it'll be instantaneous for us. For DJ and I, it has been a couple of weeks. It's like the quantum realm, DJ. For everybody out there, it's like instantaneous. But for us, it was like ten years or two, it, it or is. two it's weeks. Like this uh, this whole—it's almost like a mix of quantum mania and uh, Groundhog Day. Yes, it's like we're still doing this. That's right. One of a, <laughs> one of us is Kang, and one of us is a variant, and we're not going to figure out who that is probably for a couple of years. But anyway. We are finishing off this chapter of the Big Four Project talking about the second half of this, which is the Survivor Series 1988, which was the second Survivor Series after the uh, success of the first one in 1987. They came back and did it again in the exact same arena a year later, November 24th, 1988, Thanksgiving Eve, Richfield, Ohio at the Richfield Coliseum. Um, On commentary, Jesse the Pilgrim Ventura. And uh, Gorilla Monsoon on commentary, the iconic team that we saw helm the uh, broadcasting booth for the first six WrestleManias, they they come in here. And and yeah, this this event, you know, after the success of the year before, this one came in a little bit more, uh, you know, not so much trying to just push the Andre Hogan narrative forward, but they had some other stuff going on here. Um, but But you can see early on, this is one of these, why this kind of becomes a cornerstone of these big four events is uh 
crowd's all into this. They're all amped for this whole thing, and they they are ready to rock and roll. And um, I don't know your your thoughts on the first. I don't know. You probably been a while since you watched the first Survivor series before we get into this, but you know the concept of the event has certainly changed over the years. Where we went from this elimination tag team sort of thing solely to that to then you know you started to get around 91 you start getting the championship matches and and things like that are um are going on um but you know these early survivor series dj what did you think of um of those i enjoyed them uh the the first few is i always popped for the, the the tagline was teams of five strive to survive and as a you know 15 year old kid i i ate that up that was that was absolutely just right in my right in my bag uh i I like the I'm a big fan of elimination matches anyway. At least I used to be. The weird part about it though is this is where you gotta really, as a fan, kind of wring your hands a little bit and just go with it because you'll have five guys on one team, five guys on another team, and you'll say, we'll say we'll take like Brutus Beefcake and Greg Valentine are in there. And in a normal one-on-one match, Beefcake and Valentine will go 10, 12, 15 minutes, hit each other with the ki- everything but the kitchen sink, finally get a finisher after almost 15 minutes. But in a Survivor Series match, Valentine could take out Beefcake with a clothesline. So it, it was just kind of one of those yeah. things where as a, right. as a fan, when I was starting to catch on as to what was really going on, I'm like, just go with it. <laughs> it's Let just it one of those things. It's it's a timing issue. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think... Uh, the first Survivor Series. I mean, he had some. He had some really cool kind of matchups and some things that were going on. Um, this one, of course, is going to further. You know, it's right up there. I mean, you know, we got this stuff going on with the Bloodline right now. A lot of people are saying that's the greatest story ever told in wrestling. I've been very much against that, but the more <laughs> it goes on, I'm like, eh, I don't. I still don't think it's better than Mega Powers, but they're still playing it out. So who knows how that ends up. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about that tonight because there, when you look at especially these big four events, you start realizing how many moving parts and pieces there were peripherally because yeah. everybody was concentrated and focused on Macho Man and Hogan. There were a lot of other things in play that play into that that we'll talk about a little bit later. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get into it. This very first match of, of the 1988 Survivor Series, you've got on one side, Brutus the Barber Beefcake. You know, we talked about him kind of getting the short end of the stick at SummerSlam 88. The Warrior got his spot and, and the rest is history. You got the Blue Blazer, who, of course, is also known as Owen Hart. He's in this match. Sam Houston. OK, Sam, he's there. Jumping Jim Brunzel. And we've got the present and reigning and defending intercontinental champion, the Ultimate Warrior, a few months removed from his uh, iconic victory at SummerSlam. Opposing them, the former champ, the Honky Tonk Man. You mentioned him, Greg the Hammer Valentine, in this match, the former Dream Team. Um, yeah, well, one very, no, that Rhythm and Blues, actually, they're going to turn into Rhythm and Blues. <clears throat> yeah. We've got Dangerous Danny Davis, the worst of the worst as far as crooked referees go. You've got the outlaw Ron Bass. So there's the Brutus beefcake Ron Bass angle in there. And you have Bad News Brown, who people ha- will slowly but surely figure out, is it much of a team player, DJ? And we, yep. will, we will find that out in this match. I love the beginning of the match. You got all five members of the Ultimate Warriors team literally sprinting to the ring. I thought, okay, well, we are fully on and fully indoctrinated with the Ultimate Warrior motif here. Um, the first decision comes down. Brutus the Barber Beefcake is going to put Danny Davis to sleep in the opening moments of the match to send him packing. 
And I, I tell you what, DJ, just jump in here wherever you want. I'm just going to run through some of this stuff. If something, one of these eliminations really kind of stuck out to you, you know, let me know. We'll, okay. We, we don't want to linger on everything that happened. You know, okay, Brutus puts Danny Davis asleep, gets a good pop from the crowd because people can't stand Danny Davis and and that sort of thing. Um, Bad News Brown avoids Jim Brunzel as he rushes him. Brunzel crashes into the corner. Bad News puts him down with the ghetto blaster. So we've got one, you know, it's it's down to four on four at this point in time. <clears throat> Greg Valentine is accidentally going to nail Bad News Brown with a forearm shot as Bad News is like he's trying to hold Sam Houston to set him up for this. Uh, Greg Hammer, the Hammer Valentine goes for a uh, like an elbow shot or an elbow block forearm shot. <laughs> Sam Houston ducks out of the way. Valentine hits Bad News. And here's where we learn how Bad News is not a team player as an irate Bad News Brown leaves his teammates behind and is counted out. And there you go. So, yes, Bad News. And you're going to see this for a couple of years. They keep putting him on this team, these teams thinking that he can uh, get along and and it doesn't work out so well. This is the first example of that. It was good character work for him, though. And, and and again, he plays in very heavily down the road to the larger story that's going on. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and we talked about it on the last time we were on here with, with Bad News Brown being one of the main um, competitors for the WWF championship, one of Macho Man's major obstacles that he goes against to really solidify macho man as the uh, as a wwf champion <clears throat> weird thing happens one thing i noticed in this match is you know all this stuff happens with bad news he leaves so sam houston who was in the middle of this has many chances to tag out of this match but for some dumb reason he doesn't do it he tries to monkey flip ron bass bass catches him power slams him and eliminates sam houston so a rookie mistake, and maybe they played it up that way, but I'm like watching this like, Sam, just tag, get the hell out of the ring. He never does. Yeah. And Ron Bass, the veteran, is going to get the advantage of him. So he's gone. So, okay, okay, now we're back to three on three. Um, Honky Tonk Man is going to, like, shove the Blue Blazer off the top rope, causing him to, like, come down on his knees. This was really good work by the by Owen Hart done here. Valentine is then going to lock on the figure for the uh, Blue Blazer submits. So I actually like this el- elimination. One of my favorite ones where Honky is going to like, you know, Blue Blazer's up there and, you know, shoves him off, hurts his knees. Valentine locks on the figure four. Okay, that makes sense. That was done well. So now you've got this three on two sort of situation. The uh, Brutus to Barber Beefcake absorbs some punishment, but is eventually going to lock Honky Tonk in the sleeper hold. Honky Tonk gets to the ropes. Both guys, you know, tumble down to the ring floor and they both get counted out. So, you know, this is going to leave the Ultimate Warriors on his own against Greg Valentine and Ron Bass, the last guy in this match. But, you know, you got to see a little, I don't know, I, I you can't say Beefcake got any sort of real retribution on Honky Tonk other than they both got counted out. He got the sleeper hold on. He still never gets any sort of clean anything against honky tonk man and eventually he gets eliminated as well yeah that was always one of those things i was really heavily invested we popped for brutus beefcake the guy was over like a million bucks and really really as tony would say over like rover um and i was so disappointed that there was never a, a satisfying conclusion to the feud with him and honky tonk man and while we got that iconic as you put it earlier victory from the ultimate warrior at SummerSlam, um i Somewhere down the road, they could have done some type of payoff for fans. And you, you really, at that point, as a Brutus Beefcake fan, I started to kind of see the writing on the wall as to where they see him in the grand scheme of things. 
he's he's a sidekick. He's a, a, a he's the comedy sidekick character. He's never the main event. And I, I would always like to have I, I fan booked a, a Brutus Beefcake Intercontinental title run at one point in time in my life. Um, but yeah, just to, seeing it end like that, I was like, I guess we just yeah, it was disappointing never to get a, to get a, a satisfying conclusion to that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's as close as he's going to come now. Going to the other end of the spectrum here, the legend of the Ultimate Warrior uh, continues and it grows exponentially here. Uh, he simply overpowers these two guys. And Ron Bass was no small guy, but no. Warrior just destroys him. He crushes Bass with a running double axe handle to eliminate the outlaw and then does the exact same thing to a Greg the Hammer Valentine and the Intercontinental Champion, the Ultimate Warrior, the sole survivor. Uh, the momentum continued to build for him. Whatever he gained at SummerSlam and, and you know, that 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 push that he got and that pop he got from that moment and the momentum he gained from that only gets magnified in this match because they basically put him in their two-on-one situation, stuff that was reserved for guys like Hogan at this point in time, you know, yeah. guys who could overcome a two-on-one, especially two guys who Valentine was no small guy, Bass was no small guy, Warrior made them look like chumps and just eliminated them in a matter of seconds. Yeah. And again, back to that, that quick victory that I told you about at the beginning of the episode, where just usually the warrior hit with the press slam, hit the, the splash. And it was, you know, he, he would win the match And this one. He takes out both guys with the same move, double ax handle running, double ax handle, just kind of one of those things with survivor series. He it's, it's interesting here. I think this was the only time in the match he tagged in, wasn't it? He spent the entire rest of the match on the outside. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and he didn't even tag in. He's just, you're the last guy left standing. He might have yeah, gotten in. Yeah, you're in because you don't have a choice. I mean, he may have gotten in, if I remember earlier in the match, like punch somebody in the side of the head and then tag out, or maybe. I don't know. It's 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 hard to remember, but yeah, it, it's just like you're the last guy standing, and so he does, what, a minute's worth of work? And then right. people bitch about his work rate. It's like, well, yeah, here you go. Yeah, well, that's the thing, though. You, you got to make people, for these bigger things, you got to make people want it. And if they're working a 25-minute match and the Warrior is working 15 minutes of that 25-minute match and there's four other guys out there, are you really – is he special at that point? Right. And especially when he's still on the ascent. Right. You know, they finally give you the whole package in a year. Right. Or so from this point. But at this point, they're still – giving you the slow burn. That's, you know, you had the very, very brief match at SummerSlam. You've got a minute and a half worth of work here. I thought it was smart. I think it was, I think it was part of the, uh, the strategy in, in building this guy up. Yeah, I agree. I mean, they're just, they're just showing a little bit. They're pulling it back slowly, but surely. And I think maybe it, it, it and I, I don't know. I mean, I've never heard Vince say this, but maybe he didn't want to, um, you know, do too much with this guy too soon because he didn't want to take away from Savage and Hogan. And what he was There's building there, too. and you know, Warrior, there was a chance you could kind of—I mean, like you're saying, DJ—a year from now, it's going to become much more evident. But still, even at this point, the Warrior was building momentum very quickly. That if they didn't play this right, so you got to give Vince credit again—that if they didn't play this right, Warrior could have overshadowed what was happening. I mean, and later on, you know, after Savage turns on Hogan, you know, there's that a couple of those uh, Savage Warrior matches where. It was clear who the focus had kind of shifted to in the fans' mind. They were all about Ultimate Warrior on these house shows. So, yeah. you know, you kind of had to be careful about that. But as far as this goes, yeah, the Warrior ends up being the sole survivor. His legend continues to grow, and we'll see that progress. Um, the next match has one of these things like you're talking about earlier, other things going on at Survivor Series 88 that were very important. This match has one of the more 
interesting. I don't know. I, I think I called it a double turn last time. I'm not sure this is really a, a double turn per se, but it's an interesting turn that we see in this match. <laughs> so it's um, you got Demolition. They're the WWF Tag Team Champions at the time. They've got Mr. Fuji, who's going to be a central focal part of this match. You got the Brain Busters, Tully Blanchard, Arn Anderson with Bobby Heenan, who I just you love the team. They never did enough in WWE, even though they end up being champions. But they're one of my favorites. You got the Conquistadors, interesting team, the fabulous Rougeau brothers. They've got Jimmy Hart. And then you got the Bolsheviks with Slick. They're taking on the Powers of Pain, the Young Stallions who shocked the world a year earlier in the Survivor Series match by surviving to the end with the Killer Bees. You've got the Rockers, you know, first time we see the Rockers. You've got the Hart Foundation, so there's the first time these guys are mingling with each other. And you got the British Bulldogs. Now, this is going to be the British Bulldogs' final match as a team in WWF. Um, it's interesting enough. And this is also, because somewhere along the way, you've got that big blow-up that happens in the, in the locker room with Jacques Rougeau. Um, but yeah, this is going to be the Bulldogs' final match as a team in WWF. It's also Shawn Michaels' first pay-per-view. So... One era ends, the other one obviously just beginning. And and it all and that's happening in this match around this great story that we're gonna break down in just a moment. Um, so the rules in these tag team things, you got a lot of people on the ring. You know, you got five teams, so you got ten guys on the ring, you got managers outside. If you're if you lose, then your opponent loses as well. The team is eliminated as a whole. But early on you get to see Brett Hitman Hart catches Raymond Rougeau with this really nice small package and the Rougeau brothers get eliminated. It, Brett, you know, is talk about another guy on the come up at this point in time and, and being burned even more slowly than the warrior is because Vince doesn't quite know what he's got with Brett yet, but you can still see the talent oozing. Out yeah, of the he, hit he trusts Brett enough to be a major player in this. Like he knows what Brett can do in the ring. I think Vince hadn't quite, <clears throat> like you said, realize what Brett, brought to the table as a performer, you know, outside of just being good wrestler guy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that stuff and, and, and it's all, it's all associated with a, the very slow change in mentality that Vince will go through over the next, really next four or five years as we're going to be talking here. Um, but yeah, Brett gets the first elimination. Jimmy powers from the young stallions is going to hit Boris Zukov with his flying body press, but Zukov uses the momentum to flip up on top of Jimmy powers and he pins them. So the Young Stallions lasted to the end in the first Survivor Series. They kind of are the first ones out. And you're not going to see too much of Jim Powers anymore. Roma, she's going to go on with Hercules and become Power and Glory. But really, Jimmy Powers is kind of phased out after this point. And the Stallions, I don't know, I'd, I'd asked, I'd, I think I'd asked Tony this when we did the uh, last chapter. We did the uh, Survivor Series 87. You got any theories as to... The Young Stallions, they went over so strongly at the first Survivor Series and just never amounted to anything. That one was always a head scratcher to me. I mean, even I caught on very early with Vince that what he likes are body guys. He likes guys that are in great shape. They were. And both of those guys were in phenomenal shape, phenomenal athletes, good looking in the face, just all around, you know, stars to look at them. I, I don't know of there being any backstage issues with Jim Powers. I don't know any of that. So the only thing I can figure is that he eventually just looked at them and said, you know what, at this point, I've got the powers of pain, which are big muscle guys. I've got the Legion of Doom coming on board at some point. You know, I've got the rockers who are good looking um, guys who actually 
are a little bit more entertaining to the fans. I think he finally just looked at the, uh, the the Young Stallions as a package and goes, you know what? I've already got three or four of these guys, and they're not interesting as a tag team. Split them up, and you know Jim Powers was gone. I think Powers ended up going to uh, WCW for a short run over there. Again, didn't amount to anything. So maybe this wasn't a um, a Vinceism. Maybe this was just a, a this guy is peaked as you know a, a mid mid level job guy. So yeah. Yeah, I could never figure it out. I mean, the Killer Bees get a few things here, like Jumping Bomb Angels were similar, similarly situated. They had that great moment in Survivor Series, but just really never capitalized. And you look at that team as far as female tag teams go. Well, you know, you should have done more with that. But anyway, getting back to this match, you got the Rockers. You would get their first, like, iconic moment, I guess, semi-iconic, executing this perfect blind tag. Janetti is going to hit Boris Zukov with this slingshot sunset flip, and the Bolsheviks are eliminated. So we're back to three teams aside at this point in time. Uh, Bret Hart is then um, going to hit. Who does he get with this thing? I forget. Oh, he gets uh, Tully Tully Blanchard. That's uh, right. He gets this really nice bridging um, German suplex. But the problem with this, and you see this happen, and this is like one of the first times you see this, but we've seen it repeated so many times since then. It's gotten old. Brett's shoulders are down at the same time. Tully's going to get his shoulder up at the last second. Brett pins himself, and the Hart Foundation is gone. Like, like I said, this is like the first time like I can recall seeing this move take place. Certainly not the last time. We're going to see this in a lot of different iterations on a lot of different promotions and feds moving forward. But it's a smart move. Tully gets the better of Brett in this move, and it, and it gets us down to the point where the heels have the three-on-two advantage. T- Tully Blanchard was such an underrated heat magnet. Like, if you knew, you knew. Like, if you followed Tully, you knew how good he was. But a lot of people, when you think about guys in the ring who could get heat from that crowd, I'm watching Tully work. And there are just things he's doing and during this match. Like at one point he gets tagged in and I forget who was on the other side. It may have been one of them. It was somebody big and it was somebody he really didn't want to face. So he just kind of shuffles himself over to somebody else on his team, tags him out and then climbs right back out of the ring. It was like the powers of pain or something. He got in there with like warlord or somebody like that and said, Nope, I'm out of here. Yeah. I'm out of here. Let me tag in. Uh, I mean, he tagged in one of the Bolsheviks or something. Yeah. Quintessential heel work by Tully Blanchard. who's always one of the best. Um, Arn Anderson as well. So, yeah, you get the, you get this moment where Tully kind of outsmarts Brett. The Hart Foundation is gone. Moments later, you get the Rockers and Brainbusters are brawling with each other. They're fighting on the outside of the ring. Both teams get disqualified, and they're gone. So then you've got basically this is the swan song for the British Bulldog as the Dynamite Kid misses Smash with a headbutt off the top rope. Smash then hits Dynamite with a clothesline, and like you said, the clothesline, and pins him to eliminate the British Bulldogs, <laughs> and it leaves the powers of pain, the only members of their team still left standing. But yeah, there's there's like you're saying, you've got Dynamite goes with his headbutt, misses, gets clothesline, and he's gone. And that's the swan song for the British Bulldogs as far as their pay-per-view career in WWE is gone. I mean, a team that went from cha- champions at WrestleMania 2 and we're involved in really high-profile matches for years, and this is kind of where it ends. Like it's like so anticlimactic. Yep. But you've got so at this point the Bulldogs are gone. You got the powers of pain. They're by themselves. Then we get the first kind of, I guess it is kind of a double turn, but it's a unique double turn that I don't even know if they've really done this again since then. Where your double turn is flipping managers and or anyway, let's get into it. We get. It's odd. 
sure. It's very bizarre. I watched this again recently, and I'm I'm still I'm looking at it differently than I did at 15 years old. Yeah, exactly. You got what it starts off with. Mister Fuji is holding the middle rope open, and this causes Smash. Remember, now Fuji is managing demolition at this point in time. Smash is going to basically crash to the ring floor. And he gets counted out because of this move that Fuji does. Um, so he's counted out. Demolition is going to be eliminated at this point. Axe is going to berate Mr. Fuji, who then clobbers Axe in the back with his cane when uh, Axe is turning his back and trying to help Smash up. Smash then gets pissed off, body slams Mr. Fuji onto the concrete. Demolition leaves. So you're like, at this point, like, what the fuck just happened here? Right. Demolition's gone. Fuji gets body slammed by Smash, but we're not even done there. Because then the powers of pain go. They pick up Fuji. They dust him off, help him up. He ends up in the powers of pain corner. What is going on then? Then, you know, lost in all this is the fact that the conquistadors are like the last team left standing <laughs> out of nowhere. Fuji's then going to hook the leg of one of the conquistadors to trip him up. Barbarian hits the conquistador with a falling headbutt, and the conquistadors are finally eliminated, and the powers of pain, out of all this nonsense and crazanity, that's a ride at Magic Mountain, but I'm going to use the uh, the word crazanity here, they're the sole survivors. Um Warlord and Barbarian, we're not done yet, are then going to hoist Fuji on their shoulders in this Rudy moment. Demolition then returns to the ring to break, uh, you know, to brawl with the powers of pain, who quickly retreat with their new manager. Moments later, Fuji's going to, in a promo, is going to claim that Demolition got too big for their britches, wouldn't listen to him anymore, but the powers of pain will. And there you go. It's, it, it, is, it is a double turn with a twist. Because you've got demolition flipping face, the powers of pain flipping heel, and a manager goes from the manager actually stays heel the whole time. He's the only one who doesn't change allegiances, but he does change teams, and he's the constant. So you you realize, okay, I mean, it's kind of like similar to when the Hart Foundation got rid of Jimmy Hart a few months earlier, but this is different. This happened mid match with the two teams considered. These are the two teams who are at each other. They are at the top of their division. The powers of pain were considered. They're going to be the team that's going to challenge demolition. And that's true. But I don't think anybody saw this flipping of this. Now, being, you know, you were you were watching this at the time. You're like me. We were both watching this live when this stuff was going on. I mean, I do remember demolition did have a lot of support amongst the fans. And they weren't supposed to because they were heels. But that theme song and everybody loved, you know, the stuff, the way that they acted and people started to cheer for that. Vince, I know this is still before you can have face versus face matchups. And, and, and there were still the heavy dividing line. Vince probably says, these guys are getting a little bit too, uh, too over as heels. Let's flip them. And this is a really smart way to do it. And, you know, there's a lot of truth in that because even during their heel run, I had a demolition poster up in my room. Oh yeah, for for a team that was supposed to be a, a Legion of Doom knockoff, and I think we talked about that last half of this episode, where a lot of us disagreed with that sentiment. Demolition were fucking cool. They had a fucking great look. They looked like they could whip your ass. They probably could whip your ass, and the theme music was perfect. It was absolute, just Hall of Fame worthy theme music for demolition and the whole package was just cool 
And, you know, I was a fan. So obviously when, when this happened, I was like, holy shit, this is awesome. You know, not, not could the confusion of it was lost on me at the time. Cause all I saw was, okay, Mr. Fuji turned on demolition. I'm like, what the F is up? I'm like, wait a minute. Demolition are going to be good guys. This is awesome. So that's where my head with it. Watching this match the second time around, though, unrelated to that topic, what a slog. This match, my God. Yeah. I, I feel like this match was like 40 minutes long, and nobody really got eliminated until like it felt like the 15-minute mark. I could be wrong on that, but I, there's no way in hell I could go back and watch this match again. No, and, and you've got some of the all-time greats are in this match. You know, oh, you Demolition, do. Heart Foundation, Rockers, Brain Busters. You've got some great teams, but you're right. It did feel like a slog. Um, the end kind of redeems it a little bit with one of the more intriguing turns in, in WWF history. But, uh, and yeah, and Blackie Lawless of Wasp proves that he can do songs other than Fuck Like the Beast. You know, yep. he's got, you know, Demolition's theme song right here. So, um, shout out to Peace. Uh, no, not Peacemaker. Doom Patrol, where they had that song first episode. Oh, so, did they? Oh, yeah. It's season four, the beginning where they bring in uh, Cod Piece from the DC Universe. Have you watched oh, okay. Doom Patrol, DJ? I haven't watched it yet. It's oh, on my need, radar. You need to watch that show. Is just insane. And yeah, Fuck Like the Beast is uh one of the uh one of the songs in the first like ten minutes, five minutes of season four. You'll you'll appreciate it. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I like. I'm a big Wasp fan. Yeah, you know, they, they were, and I mean, and it's so hard to find this demolition. You can't even buy this song on, on iTunes or anything like that. You can find it on, you know, YouTube and that sort of thing. But it's like, man, they did not get enough credit for just this tremendous theme song. And, of course, demolition blacklisted by WWF for reasons. Um, yeah. Know, that sort of thing. <clears throat> but, yeah, at the end of this whole thing, the powers of pain leave with Fuji. <laughs> demolition has turned faith. Demolition's still the tag champions. That didn't change at all. Uh, but yeah, you've got a, an interesting sort of twist here where it's like, wow, the powers of pain are going to be the assholes. Okay, that's cool. Um, the next match on the card, you get Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Um, you got, who's this? Scott Casey is in this match. Yeah. He was uh, like, again, another mid-level job guy. Uh, Scott Casey was. I remember the name. Yeah. Jake the Snake Roberts in this match. You got Ken Pateri. You got Tito Santana. Tito. I mean, the anchor of WWF, without question, is Tito Santana. Yes. Hogan's one thing, but Tito's a little bit different story. They take on the team of Andre the Giant, Dino Bravo, Mr. Perfect, Harley Race, and Ravishing Rick Rude. I'm just looking at this on paper thinking, damn, one team is really awesome, and the other one is like, they got the, the, awesome The other parts. side is uh, Jake Roberts. Yeah, they got some <laughs> awesome parts, but really, this shouldn't be that competitive. Well, I mean, but you are going to get some continuation with Rude and Jake in this match, and Andre and Jake, and Andre and Hacks on a lot of stuff that bled over from WrestleMania 4 and has kind of come into this match. Rude is going to catch Patera with a boot to the face, hits the Rude Awakening, eliminates Ken Patera. R Ravishing Rick Rude talk about another guy who's going to ascend quickly, uh, moving into yeah, from here to WrestleMania five. Uh, love Rick Rude, never got the recognition I think he should have got. Uh, Dino Bravo is going to catch skate Scott Casey with the side suplex and eliminates him. So it's not looking good for the faces really early on in this match. No, it's not. They they took a beating really 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 yeah, early. Tito's going to get something back. Is he's going to hit. Harley Race with the flying forearm to eliminate him. So he gets his team back into it for the briefest of moments. 
but that's not it's going to be short-lived tito's going to try to sunset <laughs> this is a bad idea he tries to sunset flip andre the giant andre just sits on him to eliminate tito santana i'm like you talked about it earlier with like finishes to these matches that make like wait what and this was one of these ones like wait a sec tito what the fuck are you doing you're going to try and sunset flip andre the giant uh you know and Tito wasn't a rookie at this point. He was no. a seasoned veteran, so you got to wonder what the hell was he thinking? With tons of experience with Andre the Giant. Like, wait, what the, wait. Okay, look, maybe Hogan wasn't the first guy to ever body slam Andre the Giant. I don't know if anybody ever sunset flipped Andre the Giant anywhere in the world. Do you? I, I can't. That I'm aware of. If anybody, it might have been Stan Hansen, but maybe. I can't even confirm that. Maybe. <laughs> we got we to gotta, yeah, throw that out to the internet. Hey, uh, IWC, you want something to really bitch about? Look that up. Did anybody ever sunset flip Andre the Giant? We know it was not Tito in this match, and he's gone. So there you go. <laughs> the crowd, meanwhile, though, they're white hot for Hacksaw Jim Duggan and Jake the Snake Roberts. I will give them that much that as far as being over and fans really being behind you it's rare to get the the kind of fan support that hacks on jim duggan and jake the snake roberts were getting at this point in time <clears throat> not that it's going to matter but anyway hacksaw is going to set up dino bravo for the three-point stance but frenchie martin grabs his leg dino's going to knock duggan to the ring floor an irate duggan is just going <laughs> to See, you got to love Hacksaw. Grabs his two by four, and he's going to assault Dino Bravo with it. And, of course, Duggan is going to get disqualified for using a foreign object. This leaves Jake all alone in a four-on-one hole. And, Oof. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, you know, and, and it not surprising. Hacksaw just couldn't contain his emotions. And, you know, he's, he's getting fucked with, so he's going to take a two by four and go to town. But... Yeah, uh, and, and and you remember, if you recall, in the first Survivor Series, we found Honky Tonk Man in a similar four-on-one hole, and Honky Tonk did the smart thing and just said, I'm out of here, and left before yeah. Savage and Steamboat and Jake just destroyed him. So Jake, of course, being the hero that he is, the face that he is, is not going to do that. He absorbs all sorts of abuse from ravishing Rick Rude. But Rude is going to get too full of himself and too nonchalant, and Jake catches him with the DDT to eliminate the ravishing one. So I guess there is the only kind of blow off to their feud, right? Because right. we really don't get anything after this. Jake gets the last laugh by hitting Rude with the DDT and eliminating him. So I guess that's kind of the blow off to this whole thing, right? Yeah, we we kind of talked about that in the past where it really didn't feel like there was any real payoff, and I guess... I guess if we had to accept it, this would be what we'd have to accept. Because he, you know, he hit him with the DDT, which is what everybody wanted. And yep. he pinned him clean, which is what everybody wanted. Yep, exactly. So I guess you got to give Jake the win in this whole situation. But yeah, it would have been better to have it in a more definitive one-on-one sort of thing. But like you're saying, he hits him with the move. He hits him with the DDT. There's, It's not going to get much more emphatic than that. Andre's going to get into the ring, chokes the life out of Jake the Snake, Robert. Roberts, but he gets disqualified for doing this because Andre doesn't give a shit. Jake and Andre have had problems at this point where we've learned that Andre's deathly afraid of snakes because Jake has introduced this into their whole situation. Andre just doesn't give two shits about it. He's going to choke Jake out. He gets disqualified. doesn't matter. Mr. Perfect is going to cover Jake the Snake Roberts to win the match as Dino hits this footnote. Dino Bravo and Mr. Perfect are the sole survivors of this match. It's not Andre. It's Dino right. Bravo and Mr. Perfect are the sole survivors of this match. So, you know, 
we talked about it. You look at it on paper. You say, uh, one of these teams is really awesome, and the other one is there. And like you said, it's just Jake. And I guess maybe Hacksaw a little bit, but it really was just Jake. So this match ended the way you thought it would. Maybe not the last guy standing that you would have predicted. Perfect still hasn't. He's a guy who hasn't hit his stride yet, but you see all the talent in the world there. Bravo's on his way out. This is kind of Dino's last really good moment, I think, at WWF that we really see. It's kind of his swan song. So kind of cool to see him be one of the last guys there. Yeah, it's all. I think this was a fun match. It wasn't as, <clears throat> especially after the 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 uh, the slog that was the tag team elimination uh, match. This one was a bit more fun. And again, it, it it had Hacksaw in there, and Hacksaw was a fun character. It had Tito in there, who was the the work rate guy. Despite so the, it, it had a, a des- little bit of everything. Despite the brain fart that he does in this match <laughs> yeah. when he decides to sunset flip Andre the Giant, but. Uh, yeah, you're right. It it was a fun match. It was a different sort of match. Like you're saying, compared to the slog we just went through, certainly nothing as dramatic as the double turn that we got at the end of the tag match, but just from the standpoint of of a fast moving fun, you know, you know, and, and you got to see the spots, you know, you got to see your spots. Rude hit the rude awakening. Jake hits the DDT. Duggan gets a two by four involved. Andre's Andre, you know, doing what he could do at this time and just choking bitches out and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I mean, you can't complain. One side note on this, that whole exchange at the end with Andre and Jake was awesome. Like watching Andre just literally choke the leg. Jake was selling it so well, man. Like even now I watched, like you said, I watched it again a couple weeks ago and I'm watching like, Jesus, this was like, this was a mugging, you know, it was just a mauling from Andre to Jake. And it was so it was very much the passion of that feud because, again, like you said, he, Jake had introduced the snake into you know this whole thing. Andre's definitely afraid of snakes, so now Andre's you know it, it just like you said, it was just good storytelling from the uh, two of them. You're right. I mean, Andre, yeah, it's just, it's an assault, plain and simply, just assaults him, and and yep. and and it, and it was great because you got to see that Andre could still, even though he really couldn't go, that he was still a threat. And you right. got to see it with, with Tito not being able to do anything with him. Jake really take the snake out of the equation. There's not much that anybody's doing. And the only reason Andre got eliminated is because he eliminated himself. But right. So let's get to the main event of the Survivor Series 1988. It's it's an interesting match, that's for sure. <laughs> you got Akeem, who one main gang is now turned into Akeem the African Dream. White guy, African Dream. It's 1988. You got to let some shit slide, I guess, DJ, right? At this point. Yeah. In 20, hell, in 2018, that's not flying. But in 1988, you just kind of went with it. It was one of those things where you just, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't even really know what to say. It doesn't age very well, that's for sure. No, it does not. But it's 1988. And, you know, how we had the one man gang turn into. Somebody from Africa? I hey. Anyway, so let's Slick the, took him into the the African jungle and walked back out. That's with the team. only credibility the whole thing had was Slick. That's it, and that was tenuous at best. But yeah. <laughs> so you got Akeem, the Red Rooster, King Haku, who's the king now, the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase, and the Big Boss Man on one side. So you got the Twin Towers. Even you know they're still they're actually I think they've become the Twin Towers by now, but that's going to blossom and further over the next few months. On the other side, you've got Coco Beware, Hillbilly Jim, Hulk Hogan's protege, Hercules, 
and the mega powers. And so this is kind of the stage is being set. There is definite heat between the ten, twin towers and the mega powers. Um, the other guys are involved in this are, are just kind of there. So the uh, early in the match, the mega powers are going to combine to eliminate the red rooster as Hogan slams him down. Savage hits the flying elbow and that's it for the red rooster. You know, if you're going to get eliminated in the early moments of the match, DJ, that's probably not the worst way to go where, you know, the mega powers are probably one of the greatest teams of all time combined. They both hit their finisher. Well, no, Hogan didn't hit the leg drop. He just slams him down and then Savage hits the elbow. So Terry Taylor, thanks for playing. See you later. Not not, not a bad way for Terry Taylor to go out because I think, you know, at least from a wrestling standpoint in WWE, he peaked. It's he either peaked there or he peaked when he uh, eventually snapped and wrestled uh, he, Bobby the Brain. Yeah, that that's probably it. Beats him in like ten seconds or something ridiculous yeah. like that. I think that's coming at WrestleMania five. But we'll we'll say that for the next chapter. Um, Akeem is going to catch Hillbilly with a big clothesline and then hits the seven forty seven splash to eliminate Hillbilly Jim. At least they didn't change the name of his finisher to something stupid. So, you know, now you're down to four on four at this point in time. Uh, the Twin Towers prove that they can be a team as well. They combine to eliminate Coco Beware after Coco misses Akeem with a splash to the corner. The boss man hits him with the boss man side slam, and that's it for Coco Beware. So we're getting rid of the yeah, the jobbers, the jobbers to the stars at this point. We're pairing away, getting rid of some of the, the fluff at this point in time. Um, Hercules is doing damage to the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase, but Virgil is going to grab Hercules' leg as he uh, as he runs by. A distracted Hercules then gets rolled up and pinned by the million-dollar man, and at this point, the mega powers stand alone against four guys. So it's four on two, but Hercules goes after Virgil, and a distracted DiBiase is going to get rolled up and quickly eliminated by Macho Man. So it's 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 four on two, but only for a second. Macho Man gets the better of DiBiase at this point in time again, which is like, man, you wanted to see more savage DiBiase in a, in a give me a real one on one match between these guys at some point in time. But Savage just proves that he's smarter than the Million Dollar Man at this point in time, more crafty, and it goes from four on two to three on two pretty quickly. From here. Uh, everything goes nuts. <laughs> that's the, that's this the, is where the shit hits this, the fan. This is where the shit really hits the fan, and it, it get and it goes in a direction that, I mean, for 1988 or not, this is pretty good stuff that they do. Um, Slick is going to basically he 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 corners Liz. I think at some point he's going after. He's kind of stalking her. It's kind of creepy, but he's going to try to drag her down the entryway. Um, Hulk is going to catch up to Slick. And he dra- and he's going to drop him, but the big boss man catches Hulk from behind and lays him out. Boss man gets counted out at this point in time, so we're you know at this so boss man's gone, and I think we now it's technically it's a two on one situation. Or no, wait, he gets <clears throat> counted. Aren't the twin towers eliminated? Oh no, they weren't. They weren't formally a team. This isn't a tag team. Match. Right, right. So yeah, okay. this isn't a tag team type elimination. Right. Situation. So boss man's gone. So technically it's what two on one. Savage, the mega powers versus Akeem. But anyway, a- after Bossman gets counted out, he also succeeds, though, in handcuffing Hulk Hogan to the bottom rope. Now, Bossman's not in this match, but it doesn't matter because he's going to beat the hell out of Hulk Hogan with his nightstick. And then he goes in the ring and he does the same thing to Randy Savage with an assist from Akeem. So it's not looking good as all, at, at all. Akeem is going to get disqualified for this. And 
in the whole thing that's going on, <laughs> what we lose track of, it's down to King Haku versus the Mega Powers. But Hulk Hogan is still handcuffed to the bottom rope and beaten up pretty badly. Savage is in the ring. He's had his ass kicked pretty badly. So at this point, you're like, wow, how are they going to get out of this shit? He's handcuffed to the bottom rope. <laughs> Savage is getting his ass whooped. Hogan is beaten up. How are they going to pull this off? Great storytelling and drama at this point in the match before we get to the end, right? Absolutely. So Yeah, there, there was several things going on here. And I'm going to kind of rewind a little bit. One of the things that I really got invested in, because you, you look at this team and it's like, okay, Hillbilly Jim was Hogan's buddy, and you can kind of see where Coco beware. Where, where the hell does Hercules fit into all this? No like, when you just look at this on paper, but they really told this very good but small story with uh, Hercules being sold yeah. to and the Million Dollar Man a, slave, a few right? weeks prior. Yeah, as a slave. And, you know, Hercules turns babyface. So it's just all part of these cogs in this, this machine that is eventually the implosion of the mega powers. It's one of those little storytelling nuances that I think a lot of people lost. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's, there, there are like, you look at these teams on the surface, like there's not much story here, but really there was, especially that Hercules DiBiase thing that a lot of people forgot about that. Yeah. That, uh, DiBiase Hercules was going to be a slave and Hercules like I'm nobody's slave. And that turns him face. Although it's not going to amount to a whole lot, but you know, he does have an important sort of important role in this match as, as DiBiase gets distracted and eliminated. So in the end, as this is going on, you know, it's looking pretty, pretty bad for our heroes. Um, in the end of this thing, Slick is going to uh, hold Savage while Haku is going to kick him in the face. Savage, though, is going to duck. Slick gets kicked instead. Hogan is able to catch. Um, I guess he is Bobby Heenan still at ringside at this point in time. Hogan catches Heenan. With a clothesline, clotheslines him down. Liz goes into Slick's pocket and grabs the handcuff keys to free Hulk Hogan. Savage is going to survive a massive onslaught in this awesome top rope splash by Haku that you're just sure is going to put him away. Savage somehow kicks out of this thing. Savage or Haku then makes a terrible mistake, DJ, at this point in time. Poor ring awareness by the king. He kicks Savage with a thrust kick. But Savage falls right into the corner. Hulk tags him in there. And from there, we know it's going to happen. Hulk hits Haku with the big boot, hits him with the leg drop, and the Mega Powers are the sole survivors of this whole thing. Um, But we go to the post-match celebration. We saw the beginnings of this at SummerSlam. We see it a lot more here, where Macho Man Randy Savage definitely not happy at all about Hulk Hogan's post-match celebration with Liz. And unlike this subtle sort of nod at, at SummerSlam, it's much more evident here. And you you leave Survivor Series 88 thinking, there's definitely trouble in paradise. I see where this is going. Savage has got a real problem with Hogan. Uh, it, 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 it's, if there was any lingering doubt about it from SummerSlam, and they think pretty much gets erased in the early, <laughs> in the early moments of this post-match celebration. Yeah, there's there's one point at the end where Hogan like basically picks Liz up with one arm and he's walking around the ring with her and he's hugging her and Savage gets that that far away you know look in his eyes and all of a sudden he's looking at now you can see the jealousy starting to creep in he's like you know this guy's supposed to be my friend what's he doing with my girl and it, it just it was it and 
it was all facial expression. And a lot of people don't think about facial expression in, in wrestling matches. Randy Savage had some of the best facial expressions. They told the story in that look right there. And just him looking at the crowd and then looking back over at Hogan and then looking back at the crowd, like what's going on here. Just amazing stuff really was. Yeah. Like you're right. He's, he's looking at Hogan. He's looking at the crowd. It's almost like he's looking at the crowd, like seeking confirmation. Am I nuts here or is something going on that I should, are be, you seeing what I'm are seeing? Are you seeing what I'm seeing? And, and, and there's people that, and it's 1988 remember. So the lines are still divided. So all of us who are fans at this point of the mega powers are like, yeah, man, I see what you're seeing, but I can't acknowledge that to you because then I'm blurring the lines too much. But, you know, you look back on this thing and it's like, OK, it's Hulk being a little bit over exuberant with Elizabeth. Sure. Is there anything there to be paranoid about? Probably not unless you're Macho Man Randy Savage. But you're so right, DJ. The facial expressions of Savage look into the crowd, looking at Hogan and you can see literally you can see the wheels in his head turning. You don't have to imagine that you can see the wheels turning and you can see the path that he's going down where his thoughts are taking him. Yep. And, you know, we're going to see this kind of play out over the, you know, the Royal Rumble. Things are going to really escalate and then the, the main event and then off we go to WrestleMania. But um, <clears throat> yeah, it, it, lost in all this is uh, a chaotic end of this match with handcuffs, Liz picking Slick's pocket, Heenan getting clothesline knocked out. Uh, Haku making, you know, not able to put Savage away, making a terrible mistake, uh, not having ring awareness and the mega power surviving. So, yeah, a hell of an end to this pay-per-view. I mean, for the second Survivor Series, I'll go first this time. I know I put you on the spot last time on a scale of one to ten, one being abysmal and ten being fantastic. I give this an eight out of ten. I thought this was a solid event, you know, and, and it and it's it's like the middle stanza of this mega powers explosion storyline and as far as them moving that story forward combined with the tremendous yes slog of a match i agree with you completely dj but the double turn really kind of redeemed that um you know you get the fun stuff with the with andre at the beginning you get the warrior continuing to rise up eight out of ten for me it's a solid solid event yeah, I'd say I'm on par with that. I was going to say maybe seven and a half because of that slog, but you're right. The The story that they told at the end of that kind of redeemed itself and where it ended up going somewhere down the road. They hit all the high notes on this on this pay-per-view, man. Like I said, you had the Jake the Snake DDT, satisfying moment with him and him and Rick Rude. You had, you know, the, the main event was just pure sports entertainment chaos at its finest. So, you know, there were, there were so many good things. You introduced uh, the world to... The Rockers, you introduced the world to uh, the Blue Blazer, who would go on to become Owen Hart, uh, rest in peace. So there was there was a lot of good jumping off points here, as well as a continuation for a lot of good stories and a lot of things they had going on at the time. So, yeah, I think I think eight is fair. Yeah, the only bad part about that Blue Blazer thing is is the the decision to go back to that all those years later is going to prove literally fatal for Owen. But right. But at this point, yeah, you know, Owen's trying to get over in some form or fashion. And this is the He's only just way trying to get experience. He's exactly. trying to get reps in at this point, anything at this point in time. And the blazer was a really cool character and, and, yes. you know, and very different from like Owen later on wasn't so much of the aerialist that the blue blazer was, you know, he was more grounded, more like his brother, but yeah, yeah you got to see a lot of really great stuff. I mean, for the second, survivor series I, you could see why the event became such a cornerstone of wwe pay-per-views in this time is because it was just a fun event they you, you don't get that too much with the modern survivor series where they're actually telling a compelling story 
Uh, yeah. But here they were. It was right in the middle of this whole big thing. So, yeah, really cool, cool event on the road to the Mega Powers fully exploding. In the next chapter, we will cover the Royal Rumble 1989 and then, of course, WrestleMania Five, where it all comes to a head. The end of this sort of the end of this it's actually going to continue this this mega powers implosion is going to continue into SummerSlam 89 but you know we'll wait a while to talk about zeus um yeah yeah, yeah. that's that's a whole it, discussion that is a whole discussion isn't it <laughs> anyway dj before i let you go man i want to thank you for coming back on and doing survivor series 88 with me hopefully you'll be a staple of this big four going forward because it's fun guys like us this is our age this is our our wheelhouse he's two old old guys talking about stuff that we only marginally remember now thank god yeah. for the internet right and for- uh, yeah no absolutely and you know thank god that this stuff is all available on the peacock so i was gonna you know, I, can- I was gonna say thank god for the cock but you know <laughs> maybe- did, did i save you from a soundbite there yeah <laughs> that, that was gonna be a soundbite that i can guarantee you tony would use <laughs> tony, tony would definitely use that for sure before i let you go man let people know where can they check you out on social media and what you got going on on the chairshot.com all right. You can find me on Twitter at the mindless pod. You can also find the podcast with me, Jason and Rob at uh, we're on YouTube, the mindless wrestling podcast. You can also find us on the chairshot.com. That's the mindless wrestling podcast, the chairshot.com, where we encourage you to always use your head. There you go. You all the information that you needed to know about one Mr. DJ and Anyway, my friend, thank you so much for coming on the show. We will be talking to you soon. Well, hopefully we get the uh, get to the uh, next chapter of this whole shindig with the Royal Rumble 1989 as we get closer to leaving the 80s here in the Big Four Project. But, all right. All yeah, right hey, man. if I can be here, I appreciate you having I me, I will definitely continue to invite you because you are the man, and, and I appreciate having somebody of my sensibilities and my hairline uh, to yeah. actually talk <laughs> about this stuff with. Thanks again, buddy. I'll be talking to you soon. All right, man. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thanks. Bye. All right, folks, we are back. That is chapter four, the big four project in the books. Tremendous, exciting stuff to talk about. Great review of two hugely important pay-per-views in the chronology of events in WWE, especially at this stage of where we are in history, which is right smack in the wheelhouse, right in the middle of this tremendous story arc that they're into with the uh, explosion of the mega powers as we gear up and we get definitely closer and closer and closer to WrestleMania five. It's, um, you know, I think the big things about this, this whole thing where, you know, when you, when you think back about it and you look at the storyline going on between the macho man, Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan is, is one thing, you know, you've got that, you've got Liz in the middle, you've got the whole, you know, how they, they rise together, how they kind of fall together, you know, and and Savage's jealousy of, of Hogan being the driving force that that breaks this uh, once in a lifetime team up. And, you know, it, it was long term booking at its finest. That's for sure. As you know, this went on for a year, uh, actually longer. If you think about how they first got together on in like right before the first Survivor Series in 87 and then through WrestleMania four and basically damn near yeah a year and a half later until they split up and are at each other's throats again. Um, it's just, it's just great story. Art. It's great storytelling. It shows how professional wrestling can be used as just this fantastic medium for storytelling. And it's, and it's all on display here in one of the greatest, 
if not the greatest story arcs of all time, you know, and, and right now, you know, you had SummerSlam 88 where the mega powers first kind of like actually were a tag team. You know, they, they actually competed for the first time as an official team took taking on the mega bucks. And of course the iconic moment with Liz and the red panties and all that fun stuff. Um, but as you heard DJ and I talk about, it, there's a progression with Savage that he does masterfully during this whole run of things where he's, you can literally see the paranoia and the jealousy and the suspicion unfounded, you know, at least kayfabe wise though it may be, you can see all this building in his eyes and, and, and the way that the way that he's processing this and, and it's going to reach a tipping point when we get to chapter five of the big four project, which will be Royal rumble 89, where things really take a turn for the worse. We'll talk a little bit, of course, about the main event where it all comes crumbling down and then into WrestleMania five with the payoff of the uh, the mega powers exploding, Macho Man Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan in that um, iconic match from WrestleMania Five. So we will we will certainly be talking about that and, and how all that went down. So yeah, good stuff that we will be talking about there with respect to WrestleMania Five. The other aspect of things that's going on at this point in time in in pro wrestling in WWE specifically during this is the rise of the Ultimate Warrior, which we. We talked about it a little bit there at the uh, at the outset when we did the SummerSlam 88 aspect of things and how Warrior benefited more than anybody from the way that he squashed Honky Tonk Man, captured the Intercontinental Championship, fulfilled the wishes of, of a lot of people as far as people being desperate for a title change and to get the title off this son of a bitch who <laughs> so many people in 1988 just despised this guy. And so the Warrior being the one to do it you know, you talk about right place, right time. Who's going to benefit the most from this? You know, with the the only thing I've seen that really kind of matches that is, is Brock Lesnar ending the streak. Whether you were in favor of, of the decision to end the streak or not, it's undeniable the bump that Brock Lesnar got. He was always the next big thing. It was a big deal. Um, ending the streak turned him into the beast incarnate. You know, I mean, and, and even if he was called that ahead of, before that, it really transformed him. You take that, you combine it with a few months later um, with what happens at, at SummerSlam where he destroys John Cena to capture the championship and the legend of the beast is really born. The only thing I've seen that matches that is the ultimate warrior where he squashes honky here in honky tonk man in 1988 and catches fire to the point that he's the only person to cleanly pin Hulk Hogan in wwe before hogan departs you know um that's massive when you think about the hulkster and and what he was what he meant at this point in time only one person beat him clean and it's the ultimate warrior and it all starts here so while the mega powers formation and explosion storyline is tremendous you gotta you gotta look at what's going on with ultimate warrior and that's going to pay off really big time in just a couple of years you know as we progress through the chapters, you know, I think that'll probably be what, oh, if the next one is 85, I'm trying to think, chapter 7, I guess, will be WrestleMania 6 is when we'll cover the ultimate challenge and that sort of thing. But anyway, really cool episode. I, I love this is like my favorite part of pro wrestling history is this time frame. Let's talk a little modern history, though, because... What we've got going on right now is is a big bill to WrestleMania 39. You know, that's how far we are now, all these years later. Um, Elimination Chamber just took place about a little over a week ago. 
And my thoughts about the event were that, um, you know, going first to the women's elimination chamber match, I thought it was a good match. I, I did. I thought it was too short. I, I didn't think they give they gave the girls enough time to do a lot of the stuff they they did. I, I don't have any issue at all with Oscar winning. As she's caught fire, and and a lot of people, most people, picked her to win. I had uh, Raquel winning. Raquel Rodriguez winning this match. Um, I was wrong, but. You know, she still came out looking strong in the end. A lot of people picked Asuka. I've been skeptical about what they're doing with Asuka just because I've been burned before, <laughs> that sort of thing. Uh, but they've really rebuilt her in an effective way. She is a credible and dangerous challenger to Bianca Belair. I don't think she's going to beat Bianca at this point in time, but that could change. And they're really building her up. So I had no problem with Asuka winning. Liv Morgan looked fantastic in this match. Liv's definitely here to stay, um, you know. When you get beyond the the you know the four horsewomen who are now down to three horsewomen because Sasha Banks slash Mercedes Monet is over in Japan, um, you look at who's going to step up and take the mantle. Oscar, of course, one of them. Liv Morgan's got to be considered one of those players. Rhea Ripley, things like that. Um, the Lashley Lesnar match was fine, um, a little bit too short, uh, kind of an unsatisfying way to end this rivalry. Uh, you know, and and who knows where we go with that with with the rumors being that Lashley will take on Bray Wyatt, which is like, why, you know, <laughs> and Bobby and Brock Lesnar taking on Omos again. Why? I don't know. I know a lot of people wanted some different matches for them, but it, it is what it is. I like the edge and Beth Phoenix match against, uh, you know, where they take out the judgment day. That is some good payback, some good victory for edge and Beth Phoenix who have been harassed and, and, you know, harangued by the judgment day for a while now. So, that was cool. Um, the men's elimination chamber match I liked a little bit better than the women, and and I you know Austin Theory retaining is no great surprise, and it looks like he's earmarked to possibly or even probably take on John Cena at WrestleMania for the United States Championship. Take my money, even though you guys already have. Um, of course, Montez Ford came out of this match looking really strong, especially with that crazy spot that he did. Um, I've heard people calling it like a skin the cat sort of a maneuver from the top of the chamber. I don't think I've ever seen that move done before in the chamber match. I mean, it was really impressive. Johnny Gargano looked really good in this match. Um, Seth Rollins, of course, gets screwed over by Logan Paul. Uh, you know, we're going to go to a Seth Rollins, Logan Paul match at WrestleMania. Um, I don't know how I feel about that. I know a lot of people aren't happy. I mean, Logan Paul can go. Um, you know, to put him in the spotlight he's been in with such a handful smattering of matches. I don't know, man. You know, it's 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 a tough one. I'm hoping that Seth gets the win there um, and that they don't subject him to another defeat here at, you know, a WrestleMania. And then, of course, you had the, the main event and Sami Zayn taking on Roman Reigns and Montreal was, you know, I called this Canada's Clash at the Castle. That's how I called or, or described this event and you know i think absolutely that is an apropos apropos comparison because that crowd in montreal despite being maybe half of what we got at, at clash of the castle attendance wise was absolutely on fire and literally trying to do everything they could to will Sami Zayn to win of course it just didn't happen and, and you know we know that there's issues with the bloodline big time issues with the bloodline and and you know, what I wanted to talk about more than the outcome, I mean, the match was fantastic. The 
Elimination Chamber 2023 highest grossing, most watched Elimination Chamber in history. That's a big, big deal and, and, and something big to talk about when you think about all the Elimination Chambers that have gone down. Um, for this one to be the one, the largest, most viewed, largest grossing Elimination Chamber event ever. And it happened in Canada. It shows the drawing power of Canada and just why these markets like uh, like Cardiff, you know, like like the United Kingdom, like Canada, that we're not WWE is not getting enough out of that yet. And they need to start doing more in there because though that's those are fan bases that are rabid and hungry and eager to support WWE. And and they need more of that because, you know, the American audiences are, are fickle <laughs> to steal from Brian Danielson. And and they can they can turn on you in a heartbeat. But what's interesting about this, and so much is discussed about the whole concept of what are we going to do with Sami Zayn and and you know how does WWE manage this situation with Cody Rhodes taking on Roman at WrestleMania and a large number of fans wanting it to be Sami Zayn taking on Roman again at WrestleMania or somehow get Sami Zayn involved in the main event. How do you balance that without just, you know, upsetting everything? And it's tough because I, I don't feel like I know somebody today I was reading something saying they feel like Cody's being forced on them. And I don't see that at all. I just see that, you know, Cody has his own story. And a lot of people, including me, support that. And, and I love what they've done with Sami Zayn. I love the bloodline story. It's it's risen quickly, probably my number two wrestling story of all time, just off the past month. And the and the incredible stuff we've gotten from Sami Zayn from from Roman Reigns, from the Usos, you know, whose side is Jay Uso on? We don't know. Um, you know, I, I, but here's the other thing is as much as I'd like to see Sammy involved in the main event in some form or fashion, the prevailing rumor now is that we are going to get Sammy Zayn and Kevin Owens main eventing night one of WrestleMania against the Usos for the unified tag team championships. And here's why I think that is the right move to make. Um, so many people for so long have been saying that WWE needs to make tag teams a, a bigger deal. Get back to the roots. Tag team wrestling should matter. Save tag team wrestling. There's a shirt like that, a hashtag like that on the chairshot.com. And I know a lot of people want the women to main event night one of WrestleMania. Here's why I think I would rather see Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens versus the Usos main event night one of WrestleMania. Because the women have main evented two WrestleManias now. I mean, I, I understand that we switched to this two-day format, but you've got, you know, you've got Becky and Charlotte and Ronda Rousey at WrestleMania 35, the first time women main evented. You had Bianca and Sasha main eventing, what, night one of WrestleMania 37 when we finally got fans back in a limited capacity in Tampa. Um, didn't happen last year at 38, but you've had two, you've had women main event WrestleMania twice now. There has not been a tag team match that main evented WrestleMania since WrestleMania won and you want to make a statement and, and you want to make tag teams relevant again take the undisputed tag team championships put it in the main event slot of night one of WrestleMania make tag team wrestling put a focus put a spotlight the biggest spotlight you can on that with the most popular most over guy in the entire company right now right there night one of WrestleMania Sammy gets his moment tag team wrestling gets its moment I think it's a great move if they're going to go in that direction. I really hope, and this is not meant to be any disrespect to women. I get it. 
you guys have had a spotlight shined on you. It's not like you guys don't main event of anything anymore. You, you know, it, that's not the case anymore. You guys, the women's Royal rumble went on, um, after the men's, you know, this past year. Um, so I don't necessarily, I'm all in favor. I think women's wrestling needs to be showcased and focused on and not given like 19 minutes and, and kind of short change. But I really do think that if you're going to go, if you're stuck in this and you got the situation where you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, if you're Hunter and Vince, I'm sure is involved in some extent, a little lesser extent, certainly. But then, yeah, put him in the spotlight, put tag team wrestling in the spotlight and the Uso streak. I mean, that's a huge moment for night one of WrestleMania, how you're going to end this thing. So that's kind of my thoughts as to where we are right now with with WWE and and with the Sami Zayn scenario, it is a conundrum. Don't get me wrong. They they are in a no-win scenario. There's a lot of people, a lot of people who want Sami to dethrone Roman. It is very similar, but it's not it's it's not a one-to-one comparison of the Daniel Bryan situation, mainly because people didn't want Batista in that match at all. There is much less resistance and hesitance to Cody Rhodes being in the main event of this match against Roman Reigns than there was for Bautista. Lots of people are in support of Cody. I'm one of them. Um, I think he's as deserving of this as anybody to have this spot and to finish his story, as he says. So we will see what happens, man. And I, I, I'm all for it, but Elimination Chamber was a great event. Um, you know, we're fr- firmly on the road to WrestleMania at this point in time. You got NXT stand and deliver with... Maybe some rumors, some inklings that Shawn Michaels might wrestle Grayson Waller. I don't know. We'll see what happens there. Meanwhile, over on the AEW side of things, they um <clears throat> actually have a their Revolution pay-per-views coming up on March 5th. And coming from San Francisco, California, the, uh, gosh, I forget what it's called up there. <laughs> You'd think I'd know since it is my home state, but um, the Chase Center, I believe. But uh, won't be going to that one. Uh, it's it's funny that when AEW first started out, I used to think it was so cool that they did their pay-per-views on Saturdays, unlike the WWE who did things on Sundays because you could watch the pay-per-view or go to a pay-per-view and have you know, a data kind of recuperate and get back. But now they're doing theirs. Interestingly enough, AEW does their pay-per-views on Sunday and WWE is doing their premium live events, mostly on Saturdays now. So it's strange how they've done that but yeah sunday night san francisco got too much stuff going on and got wrestlemania later on in that month so not gonna make it up there for that but the card is um it's shaping up okay kind of looking at it right now i I think uh ricky starks really high on him i'm looking forward to seeing what he does against jericho the elite versus the house of black trios championship match okay um AEW Women's World Championship match might be good. Jamie Hayter versus Soraya Page and uh, Ruby Soho. I'm like, okay, that might be cool. Samoa Joe versus Wardlow. I'm not really that interested. Texas Death Match. John Moxley um, versus Hangman Page. The only thing we know for sure about that match, Moxley's going to bleed because he bleeds every fucking match now. And this is part of one of the issues that I know I have with AEW that a lot of people do is just you know, when they first came on the scene and, and people started to bleed again and there were pal drivers, it was kind of cool, but they've overdone it to the point that they've oversaturated the whole damn thing, literally and figuratively. And it's like, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's not cool anymore, but Moxley versus hangman have had a pretty good rivalry. I'm kind of interested in that. 
the AEW Tag Team Championship match, the Guns versus the Acclaim versus Jeff Jarrett and Jay Lethal versus somebody to be named. Eh, you know, if FTR is not involved with this whole thing, then I don't know what to tell you. And then you got the AEW World Championships 60-minute Ironman match. Uh, MJF versus Daniel, or excuse me, Brian Danielson. Part of me says Brian Danielson really needs to win this World Championship. MJF as a champion has been okay. But he's not moving the needle. He's not like Roman Reigns or something like that. Uh, 60 minutes is a long time on a card with these, you know, these other matches that are going on. And I just, I don't know. 60 minutes, man. MJF and Brian Danielson. Brian, okay. But you, 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 this is not Brett and Sean we're talking about here. So I don't know if they can pull that off. And if they can, then great. You know, more power to them. But I don't know. Like watching the promo the other night was um, <laughs> where MJF was talking about you know brian's kids and and brian was just like don't you talk about my kids and it felt you know talked earlier about people saying that cody was forced this felt horribly forced so yeah i mean i still i still will watch aw and and definitely the, the pay-per-views i'll check those out because those are usually really good but yeah there's just some real issues with them that i'm just um not feeling it so much and that's been going on for a while now, but we'll see. Revolution's got the potential to be really good, and then you got double or nothing right around the corner, so we'll see what happens. But it is cool that AEW's doing a pay-per-view out in California, um, you know, branching out to the West Coast a little bit more often. It just, it's if I, if it wasn't happening the same month as Mania, I'd probably go up there, check it out, spend some time up in the Bay Area. But anyway, guys, that is going to do it for this episode, episode 277 of the Attitude of Aggression Wrestling Podcast some contact information for you. If you want to email the show, you can email me at attitudeofaggression at gmail.com. Um, got comments, you got questions, you got concerns, whatever. Send me an email. I'll read your stuff on the air and make sure to answer it. Uh, on t- social media, if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at attitudeag. That is at attitudeagg. Uh, if you go to Facebook, it is facebook.com slash attitudeofaggression. If you go there, please hit the like button. Also, um, there is an Instagram page. It is at Attitude of Aggression, all one word. Uh, you will, of course, if you do go to the Instagram page, you will be getting quite a lot of photos from WrestleMania weekend. So stay tuned for that. That is coming up very soon. Um, also, if you like what you hear on this episode, make sure and leave the show a five-star review on Apple, uh, what is, whatever, the podcast, Apple Podcasts. I don't even know what they call it anymore. It's just the podcast app. But please make sure you leave a five-star review wherever you hear this. Let's people know that, well, Big Dave knows what he's talking about. And, of course, you can check out all of our content at the website, www.attitudeofregression.com. So that's going to do it for this episode, episode 277, this chapter of the Big Four Project, chapter four. Um, coming up next, chapter five, we've already talked about it. Tony is, PC Tony and I have talked about probably getting to that in the next week. So hopefully we get it episode 278 a lot sooner than expected here is this very busy wrestlemania seasons going on that that chapter of the big four project will focus on the royal rumble 1989 a big event and in a huge turning point in the hulk hogan macho man disintegration um we'll talk about the main event which is where everything falls apart and of course wrestlemania 5 where the mega powers officially explode um, and some other cool stuff happens at WrestleMania five. It's not one of the best WrestleManias. It's a bloated fucking card. There's a lot of matches, but you know, a lot of the storylines continue and, and, and move on and certain other things happen. So 
We will check that out in the next episode, but we are going to leave out of here with one of the most iconic moments in, uh, yeah, certainly one of the most iconic moments in SummerSlam history, one of the most iconic moments in WWE history, the Ultimate Warrior taking down the Honky Tonk Man to capture the Intercontinental Championship. You've been listening to the Attitude of Aggression. I'll be talking to you guys soon. So long. No question about it, but it doesn't look like uh, the Honky Tonk Man. Nobody sent any word up to us. Nothing to us, brother. The Honky Tonk Man doesn't and care. His he opponent. doesn't want to know. Here it comes. Who is his opponent? Come on, Howard. Howard doesn't even know. Howard Finkel, the announcer, doesn't know. Come on, brother. Let's get he it shook together. His head. Get me somebody out here to wrestle. I don't care who it is. Oh, don't say that, man. Don't say that, my man. There's some people back there in the locker room that would take this man apart. We're all waiting here with anticipation as to the who the opponent will be. Well, maybe we haven't got an opponent. Well, maybe uh, we have an opponent, but, uh, uh, you know, maybe he's still making up his boots. Who knows, man? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Somebody's music. That's familiar music, brother. They've exploded here in the garden. I don't see it. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.